What's up, guys? If you're on Spotify right now, please follow the show so that you don't miss any future episodes and leave a five-star review. Thank you. We drove into an area that's about uh, seven kilometers that the Taliban owned. It was their territory. Can't make a left or right turn. You got to go north or south down this road. And we had to stop. We heard the Taliban on the radio. They had set up ambushes on both of ends of our uh, small convoy. And they were getting ready to hit us. And then I realized, oh, shit. The only way we're getting out of this is we got to run the gauntlet now. And I remember when we turned around that night, my Afghan interpreter was with me. Dude, as soon as I started driving, I said, shoot anything where a bad guy can hide behind it. You know, I said, don't relent till we get out of this thing. So as I'm sitting there, I'm watching the vehicles go one by one. The firefight starts. I got time to watch the show and think about it before it's time for me to start driving my vehicle, right? And all of a sudden, I thought, you know what? I've been in a lot of ambushes, but I've never actually had to deliberately drive into an ambush to get out of it. But I have no choice this time. And then I started thinking, man, what if I don't make it out of this one? You know, I am driving them with the antennas. And so I thought about my family. And I took a moment. I said, okay, I want to visualize every one of my children's face, everybody's face, my wife, my kids, one by one. See their face for the last time, maybe. Their face, their face, their face, their face, their face. And then what I want to do is get that all out of my mind so I'm no longer distracted by that, right? And knowing that would be maybe the last time I ever think about him or see him. So, Dale, do you refer to yourself as a mercenary these days? Mm, yes, no. Yes, um, no. Okay. Well, so let me kind of clarify that a little bit. Um, <laughs> funny you bring that up. So, <laughs> BBC came to my home in Florida last May and... They want to film a documentary about me, right? They got this fetish about mercenaries. And it stems from something I did back in 2015, 2016 that made international news. Um, I was part of a strike team that was uh, contracted by a foreign government to uh, go after uh, terror targets. And mm. so um, we made the news because of that and some of the, some of the fallout from it. But uh, so they've been kind of interested in me for the last several years. And then with the... Uh, with the invasion of of Ukraine by the Russians and the Wagner Group, right, the Russian mercenary company, mm-hmm. um, that kind of piqued their interest more. They wanted to know more about mercenaries, and uh, and so we had a few conversations. I wasn't looking for to do anything, but they kept calling me and asking me questions. Long story short, they thought it would be a great idea if they could do a uh, documentary about me and my life and this kind of this this world of mercenaries. So, you know, the word mercenary kind of, you know, sometimes it's synonymous with the word prostitution, you know, <laughs> it's two of the <laughs> oldest professions in the world. And, uh, but they have a place. And so I don't think of myself as a mercenary. And in fact, I remember when we did the interview, they, they came to Florida, they watched me train and do all kinds of stuff with soldiers and, and others. And then, um, when we actually did the interview, the, uh, the journalist, they brought a journalist. That was a surprise attack. I wasn't expecting a journalist to show up. The producer showed up, the camera crew. Oh, it's from the BBC. Yeah, huh? and then like, oh, by the way, we brought so-and-so. Uh, she's a journalist, and I recognize her because she's been trying to hit me up on LinkedIn for a long time. And, uh, and I just kind of felt <clears throat> felt a little animosity. Uh, I could feel there was a little tension there, right? And uh, she wasn't – anyway, she was looking for the aha moment. Mm-hmm. And so when we started the first interview – she uh, she started using words like assassin and bombs, and I had to hit the brakes right there. I goes, let's stop. Whoa, wait, what? You know, so, you know, I said, first of all, I'm not an assassin. Um, you can call me a mercenary. That's legit. I literally, I hire myself out as a professional soldier to do things that other people can't do. They don't have the skill sets to do. Um, and I'll caveat that with, I don't murder people. I don't do anything illegal. 
Okay. Um, when I go after people, it's they're bad people. Okay? It's the difference between murdering and killing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, you know, murderers because I don't, I can kill anybody for money, but I don't do that. Right. So, um, I can, you know, if I'm going to go after somebody, it's, I got to be able to sleep at night too. And don't get this guy too excited. <laughs> don't maybe come across that table. <laughs> no. So anyways, and I, I told her, listen, I said, I'm not a mercenary. I said, I'm a professional soldier. I said, I will not make bombs. I make explosive charges. Okay. Everything that I do is I always have, um, I'm always thinking about collateral damage, minimizing that and making sure that whatever I do is targeted, um, is direct. And again, it's, you know, I'm going after just the target and I don't hurt anybody else in the process. So, um, am I a mercenary? You could say technically, yes. Um, I don't care. A lot of people think, oh, my God, he's a mercenary. It's like calling me a hooker. <laughs> so what? You know, I mean, two oldest professions in the world, we need them both, right? So <laughs> they've kind of helped create, you know, the world that we live in. And uh, there's a need for us. So. Hell yeah. But you did, I mean, we're, we're going to go through the whole thing today. You had a long military career before you were in your own line of work there, yeah. right? So did you, where did you start off? Man, okay. Whew. Better sit back, hold on your hats, buckle up, put up your cigarettes. <laughs> it's going to take a minute. <laughs> so yeah, I, all day. Yeah, so what happened was um, what happened was my mom and dad met. My dad was in the Army for 20 years, and uh, I grew up most of my childhood in Germany. My mother's German, mm. and I lived in a military – I grew up in a military culture for 20 years. In Germany, the military bases during the Cold War, um, literally that's all I knew right up until I graduated high school. And uh, when I graduated high school, my dad also retired, and he got a job up in Menlo Park, San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, yeah. And uh, with an electronics company, right? Because he was, he was in the Signal Corps in the military. And so we moved up there, and suddenly I am outside of the military culture. I'm now in this other world that I don't recognize. I'm going to school with kids that are not like the kids I'm used to. I'm going to, you know, be blunt about it. <clears throat> At least when I was growing up in the military, you know, Kids were different. You know, we, we grew up like little islands, like in Germany, for example, little islands of Americans, you know, and all we had was each other, you know, and we had, you know, we had that discipline, that regimentation from our fathers and the military life and the culture. And you got used to that, you know. Um, and then suddenly I'm in this cast in this world where the kids are a little different. Um, you know, they're not, they don't have that military, that regimentation, if you will. And I'm, you know, I know people go, oh, you know, whatever, they're going to have something negative to say about that. But there's a lot, there's a lot of good that comes out of that. Um, you know, the military is really one of the last bastions of society where, and, and don't listen to all the news and the crap out there. Racism is not alive and well at all in the military. In fact, uh, it's very integrated. Um, you really, you really hardly ever come across any incidents of racism, man. We're all brothers and sisters, man. Um, it's just the politicians want to exploit that. And they, you know, it's their way of breaking down this, this last institution, you know, where, you know, morality and ethics and patriotism still flourish on a daily basis. But anyways, I got used to that lifestyle and I wanted to go back. Uh, that's all I could think about is I want to go back to the military life, you know, and I wanted to be a soldier like my dad. And, and so, and when I was 17, before I, a year before I graduated high school, I snuck off and went down to the recruiter's office. Now, my dad had plans for me to go mm. to college. And the reason why, my dad graduated high school in 11th grade. Well, he didn't graduate. He finished high school in 11th grade. My mom in the ninth grade. Um, nobody on either side of the family had college degrees. And uh, we were poor white people, you know, at mm. the end of the day. And, uh, 
And so uh, my dad wanted me to be the first one to go to college. That was his plan, you know, his dream. My son, he's a college American degree, dream. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I had bad news. I didn't want to tell him, but I was like, I don't want to go to college. I'm not a good student. You know, I was barely making D's and C's and F's in, in high school, you know, and uh, I just was not inclined for that, you know, for school. Um, not yet, anyways. So I re- went to recruiters. He found out about it. It's too late. I re-enlisted. Um, and the reason I re-enlisted, <laughs> I was looking at um, the TV guide in my in my house one day, and one of the advertisements in the center of the, uh, of the guide was an advertisement for the U.S. Army Rangers. And they had this mm-hmm. guy coming out of the jungle, you know, with patrol cap, camouflage, car 15, you know, rappel, rope. And I said, man, that's me right there. That's I got to do that. And so that down to the recruiter's office, signed up, told my dad. And then I realized I broke his heart, disappointed him. And, um, and now I felt really bad. I'm like, damn, I can't unring that, unring that bell. So I said, look, dad, I said, I want to be a soldier like you. This is what I. This is what I know. This is what I grew up into. It's the only thing that feels comfortable to me. And uh, I said, "But I promise." I said, "I promise you, I will get my college degree. I will mm. do that too, right?" And so a year later, I went in. I ended up. Uh, I didn't end up in the Ranger Battalion because they pulled a quick one on me at the last minute. Oh, by the way, there's no Ranger slots, but man, there's 82nd Airborne Division slots, <laughs> and you can always go to Ranger School. You just tell the sergeant major you want to go to Ranger School, he'll send you. What a what a big lie, right? It doesn't work like that. But I didn't know. That's how they get you. Yeah, they got me, right? So I ended up in an infantry company in the 82nd Airborne Division, right? And then finally in Alert Platoon, Long Range Reconnaissance Platoon, and uh, for my first four years. So now I'm sitting here and I'm married. Um, you know, I've got a wife and I've got. How young were you married? So I married my wife at 21, my first wife of many. Yeah. <laughs> she was actually older than yeah, me. Yeah, we were talking before the podcast. You you represent like every nationality around the world yeah. at, at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely, man. So yeah, this one happened to be actually was French Creole, black, right? And uh, and so we had a daughter together. My daughter was pretty young at the time. And I had a crossroad. I was like, do I stay in the military or do I get out? <clears throat> because I felt like, you know, I'm really good at digging foxholes and filling them back up and sitting under a tree for three days cleaning my rifle, you know? And, mm. uh, and I just didn't feel challenged. What years are we in right now? So, so. this was uh, 1981, 82, 83. And, um, and so at this point, I'm like, okay, do I stay in or do I get out? And here's – so I called my mom. And my mom and my dad lived in Sacramento, California. I go, hey, mom. Listen, I'm thinking about getting out of the army. Uh, would you mind putting up with me, my wife, you know, and my daughter for about three or four months? I get on my feet, and my mom in her harsh German accent was like, "No, not no, but f no, right?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Damn, mom, thanks." You know, I thought you loved me, but uh, my mom's like that. You know, my mom loves me, but uh, she's got limits, right? And uh, that was a limit for her for sure. So I'm like, "Well, I don't have a choice." So I I got a letter at the same time from Delta Force SFODD, mm. and uh, it was a you know they. By the way, they send these letters out to everybody that's eligible to apply. Okay, let me carry mm-hmm. out that. You know, there's guys who remember, oh, yeah, Delta Force One, I mean, they sent me a letter. No, that's not how it works. They don't want you. They send everybody a letter because they canvass all the military records, all. And they look for guys that are meet the minimum qualifications, which are pretty stringent. And uh, if you meet the minimum qualifications, then they send you a letter, go, hey, you met the minimum qualifications. Would you like to apply to try out to go to assessment selection, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a very lengthy process. And how what's the what's the like the pass rate to get in there? Um, all right, part? it's look all right. So think about it like this: they canvass the Marine Corps, Air Force, Army, everybody, right? Everybody that's eligible. Um, out of those, everybody they've canvassed, they only select one hundred guys twice a year to try out, right? So you look to at, even try out to try out. 
My class, when I went through, uh, my class, for whatever weird reason, had 110 guys. I'm not sure why we had 10 extra guys, but we had 10 extra guys. Um, of the 110 that started, six of us completed the course. Of the six that completed the course, three of us got selected. I was the youngest Delta operator ever at the time at the age of 23 to get selected. The other two guys were 33. Um, so think about that for a minute. We've had some classes where one guy has made it or no guys have made it. Okay, that's how difficult it is. When people talk about seals and buds and blah, 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 let me tell you what the difference is between, you know. <laughs> yeah, you said it, right? I'm not going to say it, but, you know, some of them are my friends. I don't want them beating me up either. But, uh, but here's the difference, right, with Delta Force selection and, let's like, say, buds, for example. Um, and you see it all the time, right? Seals, they're all on the beach running around, you know, and they're carrying boats and rolling around the sand, getting wet, you know, and singing and yelling and hollering and crying, pissing and moaning, doing flutter kicks in the waves. And, uh, but they're doing it as what? Well, as a group, right? And mm-hmm. so when you're in a group, what, what can you do in a group? You can, you can draw power, motivation, you know, inspiration from the other guys. When, you're, ah. when your crank is dragging in the dirt, and you're like, I've had enough. And you see little Joe Snuffy over here that's worse than you, but he's hanging in there. You kind of get inspired to keep going on, right? You don't want to quit before he does. Right. But when you go through Delta Force selection, it's an individual effort. You're not with any group. You're all by yourself. Every day, all day long, everything you do is by yourself. Moreover, you do not know... Uh, these standards of performance, right? They don't tell you what they are. They give you the task. What do you mean they don't tell you what they are? You don't know what they are. For example, what they'll do is, okay, here's the task. They don't tell you when it ends. What's, a, what's an example test? Um, okay, for land navigation, for example, okay? So think of this. You're in the you know, mountains of West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, wherever, right? And Sorry to hear they're going to tell you, okay, today you're going to start at this point, and um, your, next, uh, your next point, here's a grid coins for that. You have to navigate to that, and then you get to that next point, Give you more grid coordinates. You go to the next point, the next point, next point, next point. And now you're walking through mountains, rucksack on your back. It's raining. It's snowing. It's freezing. You're tired because you're walking up and down mountains. You're full of mud and, and piss and vinegar. And, uh, and you don't know when it's going to end. And then and we ask, uh, sir, how much time do I have? The, the, the automatic response, and I know this because I was a cadre a couple of times, was do the best you can. But sir, how much time I have? Do the best you can. And then with a straight face, right? There's no encouragement. There's no discouragement. Um, you know, you're, it's like you're talking to freaking robots, you know? And um, That's so bizarre. I've never heard anything like that yeah. from the military. Yeah, there's, and there's no other place in the military that does that, right? It's just this organization. And so what does that do to you? So every day you're going doing the best you can, right? Which means going balls to the walls every day, all day long, up and down these mountains. You don't know when it's going to end. Do you know how long? You don't. Like, no, no, no. But do you know after the fact, like if your length of time that you did it is the same as others or does that vary too? You don't know. You don't know anything. They don't tell you anything, right? So, and the reason you don't know anything is because here's what happens. So you're out there by yourself for a couple of weeks, all alone, every day, under pressure, under stress. You don't know what the standard of performance is, but you know it must, you must be making the grade because you're still here. They haven't canned you yet. Um, and so what happens is you physically start breaking down, okay, because you're pushing yourself as hard as you can because you want to make it. And then when your body starts to break down, the mind starts breaking down, right? So, and guess what? They're not breaking you down. You're breaking yourself down. They're going, hey, here's the standard. Just do it. And you just do it, and you break yourself down, and you can't blame them. you got to blame yourself. It's like, well, they just told me to do it. Uh, how hard I do, it's up to me, right? And so um, so what happens is your mind starts to go, and that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the guy that has no body left. Um, you know, physically, he's done. 
can he still motivate himself to perform anyways by himself? No inspiration, no motivation. He's not looking at Joe Snuffy over here, you know, and getting motivation from that guy. He's all alone. He's in the woods by himself every day at night, you know, in the rain. And whether he succeeds or not is all on him. And this really has a psychological effect. Oh, yeah. A huge psychological effect. You're isolated um, and you're looking for some type of encouragement from, you know, the instructors. And they're just stone-faced. Do How long are the days? They can go all day, all night. They can go all day, all night. Yeah, and like, yeah, it's like, like, what was the longest session you had? Thirty-six hours, something like that. Well, let me put it this way: I did at least forty miles in one in one stretch. <laughs> I can't tell you the numbers, the time. I, I, with gear, with all my stuff. Oh yeah, and uh, but I can't give I can't give the times because I would be giving away too much information. And uh, but uh, I've done forty miles more than once, straight, nonstop. Like nonstop through you know mountainous terrain, weather, everything else. So it is by far the hardest selection in the world um, because you're all alone. And and this is where you really separate the wheat from the chaff. This is when you really get to see what a man's made out of. Oh yeah. You know, I remember when it was one particular day, um, closer towards the end of the course, and it was raining every day. It was freezing. It was the year of the hundred year floods. Um, the Cheat River in Virginia went over the banks like 12 feet. Everything was underwater. And um, I'm crossing a farm field. It's very foggy and rainy. And I just get literally stuck in the mud. I'm up to my knees in mud, and I got no gas left. I'm just worn out. It's, you know, it's late in the course. I've expended everything I had. And I know that somewhere in that direction in the fog, there's a mountain, and I got to go to the top of that mountain. And I pull out my map sheet, which was like a soggy do toilet paper, you know, just falling apart and stuff. I'm trying to hold mm. it up and orient something. You Back know? in the days, we had maps. Yeah. Forgot well, about that. We had maps too, but we also <laughs> had, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> we had maps, but on this particular day, they told us to draw our own map, right? And mm. so I had it in my pocket, got soaking wet and turned into toilet tissue. And I remember standing there, couldn't move my legs. And I was so, um, so demoralized, so beat down, so physically exhausted. I just stood there and I thought, man, I started crying. I mean, I literally started tearing up and I was like, you know, I quit, man. I had enough, you know, and, I, and I'm just, that's just, it's just too much. And I'm a stud. Um, and I finally, I, I hit that breaking point and I stood there for a few minutes and then I started to reason with myself I go, well, Comstock, you know what? Nobody's coming to get you. Nobody's mm. coming out here and picking you up out of the mud and carrying you out. Right. So <laughs> no helicopters flying. Nobody knows where you are. You know, you're here by yourself. And, and there's, no, there's no instructor anywhere near you. Nope. Nowhere near you. No, they no. just sent you off completely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I've had to go out and fly out on some of the, when I was an instructor, I actually flew out with search and rescue helicopters looking for guys and I'd have to mm-hmm. go down on a jungle penetrator and pick them up off the ground and carry them out, of the, you know, out on the helicopter. But, but anyways, I, I finally started talking to myself. I go, what are you going to do? You know, you can't stay here. If you want out, you got to go get out of the, the farm field, go top that mountain. When you get up there, you can, we call Victor Whiskey, voluntary withdrawal, right? Mm. Sorry, I like the Victor Whiskey, voluntary withdrawal. And, uh, and I thought, okay, that's the plan. I get to the top of Victor Whiskey. So now I go up this mountain, I get to the top, make it, there's a rendezvous point there. There's the instructor sitting in the truck. What do you I'm, mean rendezvous point in this context? Well, because I have to go to different rendezvous points to pick up my new grid course for my next, my next leg, right? Got it. And so, so I get up there and, and I'm thinking about, okay, I want a Victor Whiskey. And I'm like, wait, 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 Comstock, stop. I said, you're on the top of the mountain. You can roll back down the mountain if you have to because it's the only way you're going to go, right? So I managed to not Victor Whiskey, voluntary withdrawal, 
and I went and got my next grade coordinates and I went down the mountain and I continued on. And, uh, and here I am. Right. So I got to tell you, <clears throat> it was one of the most challenging, mentally, one of the most challenging and physically one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. Guys, if you're still watching this video and you haven't yet hit that subscribe button, please take two seconds and go hit it right now. Thank you. Um, the numbers, you know, obviously the numbers bear that out. It's probably the hardest course in the world. Um, and as you said, they, they pick 100 people twice a year, and of those 100, a few make it. Yeah. So when you go, when you go in, you're going into a team of guys who have been – it's in this way. It's similar to the seals who have been passed all different years in there, and then you just yeah. join up. With, yeah, yeah. Wow. You're the you're the FNG, right? The freaking new guy. And, uh, and so <laughs> you can say fucking on here, by the way. Okay, yeah. I don't want to offend nobody out there. You nah, know? don't worry about it. <laughs> We're good. Um, but uh, yeah, you know. But at the end of the day, and that's not even over then. So it's still not over. So now you get through the physical part. Then there's the next part, which is the board and the psychological evaluation. Now, you've already been evaluated several times oh, by psychologists. Yeah. Now, they evaluate you again at the end of the course. They want to see if you're still wired tight, you know, and they ask you a lot of really weird questions. Um, sometimes they don't have a right answer, and, but you don't know that. And so they just want to see how you're going to answer it. And then you end up in, sitting in front of the, uh, they call it commander's board. It's all the squadron uh, sergeants major. Uh, and well, wait, the, wait, wait. Back up for a second. What kind of questions? Joe talked about this. He had a similar thing for Ground Branch, which we'll get to that too. But this is obviously for Delta. Yeah. What kind of questions would they ask? Well, you? they can ask you, you know, imagine you're 23 years old. You've done really nothing, haven't done a lot in the military other than being a, an infantry guy. And they're going to come up, create hypothetical situations. What would you do in this situation, mm. <clears throat> right? And they want to see you think through it, right? <laughs> Now, you don't know if there's the right answer or there's not, but they're looking at you going, is this guy logically working through the problem or is he just winging it? Like, I'm going to kill them all and let God sort it out. You know, no, that's <laughs> not the right answer, right? You're out of here, you know? And so they're kind of looking at your maturity and things like that because at the end of the day, what they want is a guy, regardless of age, which is the minimum age was 22. Um, I was the youngest at 23 at the time and at the rank of, uh, actually I was an E6 staff sergeant, but you're expected to be able to go out by yourself, represent the unit and the United States government, okay, and speak to anybody at any level um, about tactical operations, strategic operations, like if you were a general or anybody else. They want to know that if they send you out there, you're not going to embarrass the unit or you're going to screw things up. And so mm -hmm. they're looking for a level of maturity as well. So we had a saying, we're not looking for the best man. We're looking for the right man. And look, there's a lot of dudes out there, studs, that could run through that selection course. Very few, but they could, right? They get to the end, but they're dumber than a rock. And it's like, yeah, you're pretty strong, but, uh, you know, we don't need strong guys. We need smart guys, um, you know, that are strong. And so, in fact, when we did the shooting part, we didn't – we always said we don't need – we don't need shooters. We need thinkers who are shooters, right? You mm. have to be able to think first, and shooting Whoa. is a secondary piece of it. Um, so – and then from there, you go in front of the commander's board, ask you a bunch of questions, assuming you make all that, you know, they like you, you know, and you answer all the questions the way they wanted it. You get selected. Then you got to go through the operator training course, which is about another seven months. Um, and that's very, another pass-fail situation, Another pass-fail right? situation. Lots of pressure there. Uh, a lot of guys wash out um, when they go through that portion, particularly wow. the, uh, the close quarter battle piece of it, where you're actually going into rooms, right, with teammates, and you're shooting – 
robots and targets. You got chickens flying around and balloons busting and loud music and strobe lights and a lot of madness going on the house of horrors. And, uh, they want to make sure that, uh, some, some guys just can't handle the stress and they're very dangerous to themselves and to their teammates. And if that's noted, you, you know, to, at some point you'll be excused from, from the training. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. we can't use you psychologically. You're not prepared for this type of training, right? right? You're just not adapted in any kind of way for it. You know, sorry, you're a good guy, but you don't have what it takes to do this kind of work. So they put you through the ringer. A lot of guys fail that. Um, it is very difficult. Um, it's very nerve wracking because you don't want to be that guy that shoots while well, hostage target. That's a no, no. All right. God forbid you shoot a hostage target by accident and God forbid you shoot your own teammate, right? That would be yeah. really bad too, right? So, but everything we did was live fire, live ammunition, live explosives. Um, there was, you know, we literally shot around each other, you know, very, very close within inches of each other, um, you know, and um, we had to be able to do that. I mean, you were expected to that. You're a surgical shooter, one of the, some of the best combat marksmanship in the world. We had to. Think about this. If I had to go into an aircraft, a tubular target, and we got terrorists inside of an aircraft with 200 living hostages, and we bust in there, and they're screaming, hauling, they're jumping around, you got a bunch of bobbing heads, and I got to take a 10% shot with a 45 at 15 meters, and I got to hit the dude in the head. I better hit the dude in the head and not hit the passengers in the head right. or my other teammates on the other side of this guy, right? So we had to be able to hit the target and know what's beyond the target and know that if we get a through and through shot, I don't kill somebody else. So you had to, this is where the thinking part comes in. Thinkers who are shooters, right? Control the situation, not letting the situation control you. How good of a shooter were you before you did all this? I sucked. I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 and I could shoot a rifle, but I never shot a handgun. Handguns were, you know, we had to be very good with handguns. And the theory was if you can shoot a handgun very accurately, then you can shoot any weapon, you know, long guns, um, carbines, submachine guns. What and, makes a handgun so difficult to shoot? Well, because one, you're not, you don't mount it into your shoulder, mm-hmm. right? And two, you're extending it outward. So, you know, you get a lot of weaving and bobbing, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to hold this gun up. Two, you've got to manipulate the trigger while it's doing all that out there. Um, you got to press the trigger and you got to keep the sights aligned, right? So front sight and rear sight alignment. There's a lot of things, there's fundamentals that are, that are, are applied in a handgun that makes it very difficult. But if you can apply all those fundamentals in a handgun, then you can much easily apply those in a mounted weapon in the shoulder. Um, so we had to be really good at that. So I'll, I'll share another. Keep, keep that mic clo- close, by the way. Yeah, and another. I'll share another part to that story. So I show up at OTC, Operator Training Course, day one, and we're all sitting around, you know, at the desk waiting for the instructors to come in with the FNGs, and we got our little badges, and and the guy comes in. Um, we oh, call they him. Hit you with the badge too. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about the badge. So this guy comes in. His name is Mad Max. Imagine a guy that's like five foot six, um, big red bushy mustache. Gnarly, just uh, just you know, he was like Yosemite Sam without the cowboy hat, right? He walks in, Vietnam vet, and the first thing he starts off with was, "I want everybody to take a look at the badge hanging around your neck." We're like, "Okay, look at the badge." He goes, "You know what that badge means?" Nobody wanted to answer. He goes, "I'll tell you what the badge means. It means you can come through the front gate without the security guards harassing your ass. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you're a Delta operator, nothing else." And we're like, mm-hmm. "Okay, now we sorted that out. Okay, got it. <laughs> I'm not in yet. I got it." And then, uh, and so then the training started. And so, like I said, the training is very firearms intensive for the first couple months. And uh, the first two weeks was all dry fire training. In fact, we were in a bay, uh, in, indoor bay. And every day from around 0830 to around 1800, every day, 
We were standing with all our combat equipment on, four feet away from the doll, the, a wall. There's a one-inch square pacing on the wall. And we would go through, on command, all the fundamentals of, of marksmanship training, combat marksmanship, from the four-stroke draw to reload drills, to clearing drills, to offhand shooting, right, turning movements, over. And we never shot a bullet yet. We did this day in and day out, every day. You know when you do something every day, all day long, you go home and have dreams about it, you can't get oh, out of yeah. your head, right? That's what it was like every day. I'm, I'm doing firearms training in my bed at night with my wife, you know, like, Jesus Christ, you know? And uh, about five days went by. And so every day after training, around 1800, 1900, we would go into the classroom and we would get, do a, a brief back and the instructors would go, okay, guys, this is what we did today. You know, we need to work on that. We need to work on this tomorrow. We're going to do that, blah, 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 you know, and feedback and so forth. And everybody's bobbing their head. Yep. That makes sense. And then something happened around day five. And what happened was Mad Max goes, Comstock, stand up. Wow. That's never happened before. He's never asked anybody to stand up. So I'm like, Roger that, stand up. And he just starts to dress me down right there in front of everybody. He goes, Comstock, you're the most effed up shooter in this classroom, most effed up student. He goes, if you don't get your shit in one bag, you'll be doing the duffel bag drag out the front gate. Do you understand me, Sergeant? I'm like, whoa, did not see that coming, mm -hmm. right? And uh, very disconcerting. And everybody else was like trying to move away from me because they didn't want to catch whatever <laughs> I had, right? It was like, you know, like, Jesus Christ, you know, that was what, what I, I didn't even realize I was that bad. I thought I was keeping up with the class. So, anyways, I went home that night, and I remember thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so, I remembered something I had, I had done when I was uh, 15, playing baseball. And uh, I'm going to have to kind of segue off on this story a little bit. What happened was, well, when I went home that night, my wife goes, hey, honey, you know, she's cooking dinner. You want to eat dinner? And I go, no. I said, I got to go to bed. I got training to do. She didn't quite understand, but she knew whatever I meant was serious, and so she didn't bother me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline me didn't question me i went to bed and i laid in bed all night long and i visualized everything i had learned so far mm. the grip i mean like i'm actually doing it. i saw the front side picture front side alignment trigger press follow through breathing stance blah, blah 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 i could feel the weapons in my hands to this day i can still feel those 245s that i had the primary and secondary they became a part of my body part yes. of my you know i mean really i shot so many rounds through those guns over the years it's insane and um so I, I visualized all night long actually doing this properly, the way I'd been trained. Now, next day I go to training, and training all day, nothing happens. Nobody's yelling at me. Nobody's encouraging me. Nobody's giving me an attaboy. Nothing. Total silence. Day two goes by, same thing. Day three goes by, nothing's happened. Now I'm getting nervous. I'm like, you know... At least if they're yelling at me, they still think I have potential, but they're not even yelling at me, right? They don't even and care. I, all right, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, man, we're getting down to, you know, we're getting down to the final final hours, I think, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God. And then we go into the classroom in the day three, and it happens again. Comstock, stand up. Oh, man, I swear to God, I had a 1,000-pound barbell on my shoulder. I'm like, oh, 
And I got up, right? And I, I stood up and I was looking down at the floor and I could hear the, you know, fat lady singing in the back, you know, the swan song. And, and uh, I could see all the guys looking at me at the corner of their eyes, kind of moving away, you know, because they know I'm getting ready to get fragged right here in front of everybody. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm already thinking, that's ah, all over, right? And, um, and then he goes, Mad Max goes, everybody take a look at this man. Take a good look at this man. And now I'm thinking, yeah, go Last ahead. Last time you ever going to see him. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm thinking, yeah, rub some salt in the wound, too. Why, why embarrass me in front of my peer group, you know? I'm a I'm a non-commissioned officer. We're all non-commissioned officer. How about you just take me around the corner and go, hey, comp suck, you suck. Grab your shit and get the hell out of here. He couldn't even do that, right? I'm thinking, this is this is bad, you know? And I was getting kind of angry, too. And uh, and he, when he said, take a look at take, take a look at this man, I'm like, yeah, take a look at the loser. Take a look at the loser, you know? And, and, um, and then the next thing that came out of his mouth was, he goes, this man is the most fundamentally sound student in the class, and I predict he'll be Top Gun. I'm like, whoa. whoa. And I'm looking around. There's like, a 180. Yeah, complete, right? I'm like, whoa, really? And uh, congratulations, Comstock. Good job. Keep it up. Well, after we completed that part of, uh, part of the training with the, uh, the 45s, we had what's called a man-on-man competition, Top Gun. Mm. And basically, they set up. It's a double elimination. You have two ranges set up identically, um, and you have to basically shoot for time, and you have to knock down a series of targets, right? Pepper poppers, plates, bowling pins. And then in the middle between these two ranges, there's one, one target. Um, it's a, called a dueling tree. It's a vertical post, and it has two, uh, two, two inch or three inch flags on each side, right? So a total of four. Once you knock all your targets down, you got to go to the flag. You have to knock your two flags and make them swing around to your opponent's side, okay? And if he gets all four flags, he loses. And so I'm going up against what no doubt in my mind was the best shooter in the class the whole time, right? I was just like, wow, you know? And it's down to me and him. I'm like, wow, it's amazing. I went from like zero and I'm number two, right? Mm. And so we shoot it out. And uh, the rule was every plate had to fall over before you engage the dueling tree. So I'm ahead of the guy, ding, 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 ding. I'm hitting all the plates, knocking everything over. And then I hit my last pepper popper. I hit it, uh, center mass. I'm up on the dueling tree and out of peripheral vision. I can see it's just kind of teetering. I'm like, ah, oh, crap. And I remember the rules. I go back to get it. As soon as I go back to get it, it falls over. So it wasn't balanced properly, right? So I come back. And by the time I come back to the tree, my opponent's on the tree. He's one shot ahead of me now. Mm-hmm. You know, ding, 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 ding. You know, and he beat me by one shot like that. And uh, I was like, man, so close. But yeah. number two, I mean, that's... Well, at the end of the day, I technically, I technically I beat him, right? It's just the, the pepper popper was not balanced <laughs> properly when they set it back up. Had it fallen like it should have, I would have won, right? Did you ever but, find the guy who put that up? No, you know, and I actually didn't care. I didn't even make a big deal. I didn't, you know, it was obvious who won the fight, and uh, I was just happy to be there. I didn't care if I was the last guy. I'm like, congratulations, dude. Good shot. You're top gun. And I was just like, whew, I'm still in the course, you know? <laughs> so, um, but... Uh, but, you know, that's a little bit of inside story about the unit and just how difficult it is. Um, a lot of guys fail the OTC. They don't, they don't get to come back. Uh, a lot of guys get shot during the training. In training, they get shot. Um, oh, and yeah. sometimes they get recycled and sometimes they don't come back. Uh, it's a very dangerous, uh, a very dangerous uh, training event. And it uh, lasts for six to seven months. Includes all kinds of stuff, military free fall. Um, it's, it's, it's very physical, very hard and, uh, and very psychological. How do they make, I, I want to talk about like where you went first and, and what you were doing, but how do they make the decision in the military for missions to go to say Delta force versus Navy seals and stuff like that? Like, obviously we know with, with the Navy, if it's water-based, of course they're going to do that. But you know, we see a lot of land missions too. I mean, the yeah. Osama bin Laden mission was all on land and they use Navy seals there. How does that go down and what's the coordination like? Yeah. So 
let me start by saying this. Delta Force is the premier counterterrorist in the world, hands down. Uh, SEAL Team 6 came after the unit, okay? In fact, a lot of the SOPs and stuff they got, got from us. SOPs? Uh, standard operating procedures, right? Things yeah. like that. T.O.N.E., tra- training operations, equipment, ta- tables, stuff like that. Um, I got to get Remy in a, guy, in a room with this guy. Yeah, I'm sorry. He's so good. I forgot you guys don't He's understand so acronyms. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> any, anyways. That, uh, guy, that guy just mentions a Navy SEAL, but I think it's Oh, yeah. Funny. Yeah, we'll have hand-to-hand combat in here. It'd be freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, ahead, I'll I'm probably sorry. screw up his hair gel though. But you know, he, I don't, don't, he don't have hair. He's just like you. Oh yeah, he's got it done because because all the hair gel he was using. That's why he don't have hair. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's just hereditary. <laughs> anyway, you were uh, saying standard operating yeah, procedures so, came so, from you guys. So, anyways, long story short, you know, how is a d- uh, decision made? Who goes? Um, there's a lot of variables and factors. Um, you know, seals were literally out of their element on the ground. They're, they're they 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 do water ops, okay, and just because there's not enough, we didn't have enough special operations capabilities. They found themselves doing a lot of the land stuff as well. And I'm not saying they can't do it. They can. Um, but you mentioned Osama bin Laden. Okay, now I wasn't there for that part. But from what I understand, you know, I was there, but not with that part of the unit. Uh, the unit. What happens is in Afghanistan, for example, you've got so many assets committed every night to running operations all across the country. Every unit you know, they're running off. Oh, yeah. You know, you could be running 20, 30 operations a night, and there's only a limited amount of helicopters and assets available to support those operations. And so, you know, when it came down to, you know, him, it's like they, the, the first people they call was the unit, Delta. Okay. And then Delta goes, okay, you know, look at our matrix, you know, what's the probability the guy's there? And if it doesn't cross a threshold, for example, more than 50%, they're like, yeah, I know what, give it to our little sisters, the SEALs, let them handle that one. You know, give, <laughs> hey, let them do some fun stuff tonight, right? <laughs> well, you know, we do something else. And, uh, well, that was a mistake that night, you know, because it just so happens he was there and, you know, they got the, they got the glory for it. Um, and, you know, look, one team, one fight. I'm not begrudging that, that kind of stuff, but, you know. Sounds like you're begrudging a little bit. Well, maybe. I hear, I hear you know, a little bit. Maybe, you know, but, uh, you know, a lot of SEALs are my friends, too. Imagine know? if the last thing Osama bin Laden saw was that handlebar. Like, <laughs> you're dead, motherfucker. That would kill Goodbye. me. That kills automatically. It's got like 30 kills by itself, you know. I mean, <laughs> for do you, sure. Do you, are you a guy like, you're, do you have the cigar hanging out in your mouth while you're shooting people? No, I actually have a lollipop, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, yeah. You're a lollipop guy. Yeah, I like, I like put, sucking on lollipops, man. Um, yeah, I, I'm not a cigar guy, but uh, I wouldn't have taken you for that. Yeah, I got pictures of me downrange. People have taken pictures of me. I just need like the Tropic Thunder image of you with like the fucking AK in your hand, just with the cigar chomping out, like America. <laughs> uh, but um, no, there's there's a metrics for it. Um, you know, it just depends. You know what what the mission is, and also you know what assets are available, and what you know the units that they want to use, are they already committed to something else? So, you know, it's task organization, you know, it's, it's done at another level and, um, you know, it's not who's better. Um, it's who's available and who can mm. do the job type thing. So how many types, how many people are in your standard Delta force group? That I can't tell you. Oh yeah. Can't tell me no, that. That's classified. Can you give me a ballpark? It's not many. You just do the math, right? I just told you earlier today, you know, not a lot Three of guys made it through, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the numbers are very small. Um, but, you know, the, the guys that are selected, they're selected because they, have, they bring something to the table in that, you know, they have above average IQs, um, PT tests, physical fitness scores, um, 
no judicial punishment. There's all these things they, they factor in, right? And they're looking for the right guy, as I mentioned earlier, not necessarily the best guy because that's all relative. What's the best guy, right? Everybody thinks, oh, he's the biggest, the fastest. He must be the best. No, I've seen a big, lot of big, fast guys fall flat on their face real fast. Um, it's not about that. And who is the right guy? Actually, it's kind of a well-kept secret between – uh, the psychologists and the command section, and only certain people in the command section know what the standard is. Nobody else knows what the standard is. I remember one day standing around in a squadron bay at the end of the day with some of the other operators. We're, you know, we're drinking our beer or Coke or milk or whatever fuck, you know, guys were drinking. And they were like, you know, what do you guys think? Why do you think we're here? You know, and we're always trying to, we're always playing the guessing game. You know, what, what, why are we here? What, you, anybody take a guess, you know? And one guy came up with a pretty good answer. I thought, you know, he probably hit the nail on the head. And he goes, yeah, we're all here because we're all controlled psychopathic killers. And I thought about it. I was like, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, you know, um, because nobody has in the Controlled U- psychopathic killers. Well, if you think about it, right? So it takes a little bit of psychopathy to go out and, and be able to kill, you know, and take out people sure. and, and not really have a lot of remorse for it. You know, as long as you're killing bad guys, you know, you shouldn't lose any sleep over it. It's when you, when good people get hurt, that's when you lose your sleep. Yes. And so I thought about it. It's like, you know, no, no man here standing with me or in that unit has an aversion to going to combat. In fact, we all look forward to it. We actually look forward to it. That sounds even more bizarre, right? It's like, wow, you guys really want to go do this? Like, yeah. Um, it's like playing, you know, it's like playing on a, on a, on a, on a professional football team. And what do you want to do? You want to play what? At the end of the year, you want to play the Super Bowl, right? Who wants to just play to play and everybody gets a trophy? No, we want to win in the Super Bowl, right? And that's kind of how it was in the units. Like, you know, this is why we're here. We want to be the best. We want to do the things we've learned how to do. And it's not just because we're, you know, again, control psychopathic killers. It's not that. It's because at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're driven by, you know, patriotism. Um, we're, you know, uh, you know, integrity and honor and, and all those things that, you know, a lot of soldiers hold near and dear to their heart. You know, uh, we believe in certain things. Maybe a lot of civilians don't, but as soldiers, we do. And that's what compels us and allows us mm-hmm. to go out there and face, you know, and face the enemy, knowing that we may never come back. You know, I, I had one of the spooks I had in here was this guy, Jim Lawler. It's interesting to talk with you because your expertise was in the field undercover with nuclear arms deals and things like that. And it's like the whole reason we went to Iraq was because they had WMD and that turned out to not be true. That's exactly right. People ask me about that sometime. And it is it is true that Saddam Hussein had been working on nuclear weapons before then. He had used chemical weapons against the Kurds. The Kurds are an ethnic group yes. there in Iraq. Killed thousands of them. In fact, one of his cousins was known as Chemical Ali. Chemical Ali used. Who's like an old school CIA guy. He was, well, he says he's not in anymore, but are you ever really out? But he was in from 1980 to 2005. And one of the things he talks about a lot is the psychological profiles that they look for, in this case, within CIA Mm -hmm. case officers. And he is very open about the fact that one of the profiles they like – it doesn't mean every case officer is like this – but they love guys who are dangerously on the line of being a sociopath. They're not a sociopath, but they get hirings wrong too. So every once in a while, they do hire a sociopath. But Jim talks about that. He's a self-awareness of it with himself. He goes, I'm like right there, but I'm not. But it allows me to be able to do my job because I have to make hard decisions where people die. Right. You know, bad shit happens and is is the bad shit for the good. 
You know, that's right. the decision to make. So in your seat, like as a case officer, his main job is not to go out and fucking plow motherfuckers down who are bad, right? Your job is. And it could be any second, any day. You got to be willing to go in there. The boss says, hey, these guys are bad. Not even here's why. They're just bad. They got to go. You got to be able to go do that without sitting on the trigger like, uh, maybe. Wait. Is this guy really bad? You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's that, let's go. Well, there's another component to that, right? So, and this is one of the reasons we, we know we're selected because it's, it's constantly ingrained into our heads. Um, at the end of the day, there's nobody can tell you when to shoot or when not to shoot. Mm. This is why they're looking for the thinker who's a shooter. You've got to make a judgment call. Is this, is this worth the shot? Am, you know, now here's my example. Okay, so Modelo Prison, uh, Raid on Modelo Prison. This is actually on Discovery Channel, I think on History Channel. Um, they declassified it. So that was the rescue of Kurt Muse out of uh, Modelo Prison, 1989 in Panama. And you were involved. Uh, <clears throat> I was a breacher on it. I'm the guy that actually blew the the doors in on the on the uh, annex on top of the prison, and went down to get him out. So um, as we were coming in, if you can just imagine. Um, we had a hit time of midnight on the December 20th, and about seven hours out, we got information, intelligence that uh, we had been compromised. And again, um, you know what they say, loose lips uh, sink ships. Mm -hmm. So a couple of guys, you know, that live there, you know, called home to mommy and daddy, said, mommy, daddy, something bad's going to happen tonight, but I don't ever see you again. I love you. And like, you know, and then some other guy went down and is told all his Panamanian friends and family around the canal, hey, you guys don't want to be around here tonight. Something's going to happen, right? So, okay, that just alerted the, the enemy that something's going to happen tonight, right? And so we knew we were compromised because our snipers uh, were already deployed. They're in the wood line, the jungles, and they're watching. And they're like, oh, all of a sudden, Modelo Prison is being reinforced with uh, uh, Panamanian Defense Forces, Dignitary Battalion, Militia. Um, they're literally setting up 50 caliber machine guns on all the corners. They're reinforcing the Commandant's the headquarters across the uh, street, uh, Noriega's uh, military headquarters. There's a lot of activity. And that that activity started to draw in civilians because they wanted to come down like they were literally coming in with lawn chairs and stuff, waiting for the Mardi Gras parade or something, the Rose Bowl parade. Like what? And they're sitting on the on the on the sidewalks drinking and playing music, and suddenly you've got thousands of people around the target, right? And the target's being hardened, and we got to go get in there and get them, right? Because the reason we had to go is because oh yeah, the 82nd Airborne Division and Ranger Battalion are in flight already on the way. Right, so there's a big aerial signature in the sky. Timing, right? Yeah. And they're on the way. We can't turn them around because now the mission will be compromised, and it's a change. It's a game changer. So we've got to go. And what ended up happening was all we could do is slide the hit time H hour to 20 minutes to the right, zero zero two zero hours. And we went in. And I remember I was on a little bird, this little uh, MH6. You, you've probably seen the pictures of the small helicopter, like a flying egg. It's got the little paws on the outside, two guys sitting yeah, on the outside. Yeah, we'll put a picture of it in the corner of the screen. Yeah. you'll pull it up. And, uh, and so I'm on, uh, I'm on the first bird. There's four of us going to come in and we're going to land on the roof. And then I'm going to get off with my breaching charges. My job was to run over to an annex, which is about 10 by 10 square. Um, I had a door on the top, a steel door. According to CIA sources, it was a solid steel door. So I built the explosive charges to, you know, breach that door. And uh, so I run up to the door. Well, let me back up. So as we're landing, okay, because of the weight of the operators and equipment were taken in, which wasn't a lot, by the way, um, the, the initial helicopters, the, the original MH6s, um, the engines were the same engines they used for um, 
irrigation machines, like in farmer fields, right? It's a mm-hmm. motor that you sprays, and that, that's what's holding us up in the air. I'm like, holy shit, they put <laughs> propellers on it, we're flying this thing. I didn't know that, right? And I got a briefing from the pilots on that. And so we were actually maxed out with four operators, all our body armor, you know, weapons and stuff like that. They're like, we got to chop weight so this thing stays aloft. And we were literally stripping avionics out of the helicopter. Okay, you don't need that. You don't need this. Get that out. Get that out. Get that out. And in fact, two of the helicopters, the four, it's like, hey, you know what? We don't need two pilots. You're out of here. You know, <laughs> we had two helicopters with one pilot and two with two pilots. Um, all, all of the operators, we literally didn't even bring any water in. We just tried to trim as much weight as we could so we could land these helicopters. And it still wasn't. We were still weren't able to just land them. We had to actually sink the helicopters in very slowly onto the roof. So as we're approaching and we're literally sinking the helicopter on the fourth story of this prison, I remember, you know, at this point, all hell has broken loose. There's gunfire everywhere. I mean, people are dying. It's like complete chaos. And, uh, and I noticed as we're coming down, I saw a group of about four women and running out in the street, a couple of them holding babies. And in the middle of the four women was a, a, a man. And he was part of the, uh, what they call the dignitary battalion. He was a militiaman, right? And so I can remember him very vividly. He was wearing blue jeans, a white guayabara, bearer, brown, uh, brown type of hiking boots. He had an AK-40S, uh, short uh, uh, um, AK-47. Uh, I still remember he was probably about five foot eight, uh, 190 pounds, and you know how how can I remember all the details? Because um, when something's very emotional, you tend to remember it much longer, all the mm. details, right? And so this is a pretty emotional period right now. <laughs> People are dying and shit's happening. And so as they're running out in the center of the street, I think probably in distance from my barrel to his nug- noggin was about maybe 30 yards. And uh, he had his AK-47 up, and he was using the women and kids as he was backing up as a shield. Mm. And he was... And he, he hadn't leveled the weapon at me yet or in my helicopter because he was still kind of moving. And as they were crossing the street, um, there was a cemetery. And the cemetery had like a four-foot wall, but the entranceway was like an arch um, that you could walk through. And uh, they were all kind of moving to that together in a cluster. And I already had them in my sights. Um, I had an 8.2 thousand. I had the dot on his, on his forehead. I could have took the shot, but, you know— I didn't take the shot. And the reason I didn't take the shot, because I was able to, you know, with all the excitement, I was still able to discern, listen, if you take that shot, it, that round will go through his melon and it will probably hit the woman and child behind him. Okay. Oh. And so, you know, and I said, he's not an immediate threat, although the weapon's up, it's not shouldered, it's not leveled. He's not taking aim yet. He's still moving. I said, I still have You're time. You're able to make that whole calculation. Yeah. Wow. That's what you're trained to do, right? That's why you're selected. So. And how far away were you again? Maybe 30 yards, max. Uh, but that's kind of, and you were able to tell. Wow. Yeah, and I'm I'm at a and I'm at, you know deflate position shooting down at him as the helicopter's sinking. <laughs> do, 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 do. I hadn't shot yet, right? Yeah. I mean, not him yet, and so. But that's how it's going to let you. Basically, it's like a drive-by. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, plunging fire going straight down. So, but something told me, man, just wait. He's not going to shoot yet. But when they go through that arch, somehow I knew. I don't know how I knew, but somehow I knew that the women with the babies would all button hook to the left and he would button hook to the right and he would come over that wall. And damned if he didn't. That's exactly what happened. He came over the wall. Now he brought the weapon up and leveled it and, you know, I was waiting for him. So, you know, I sent him, uh, you know, I sent him uh, a hello and a goodbye. So, um, and so, you know, and then the helicopter landed. I'll show you what hell looks like, boy. <laughs> but, you know, 
But the, where I was going with all that was you have to be able to make those critical decisions under pressure, under stress, and you got to make good decisions, right? Because you have to live with them, right? If I took that shot and let's say the helicopter buckled and I hit, you know, any number of those women or kids, you know, I got to live with that, you know? And you have to ask yourself, was that shot, was it worth taking that shot at that moment in time? And sometimes the answer is yes, because if I don't take that shot and he shoots and shoots my helicopter down, guess what? You may have four or five fathers on this aircraft whose kids need them, Mm -hmm. right? And boom, you know, so, you know, it's, you got to weigh all that out. That's a tough decision to make, you know, and uh, there's no right answer for it other than, you know, the man on the ground, you know, you, you know, you got to make that. And this is why we go through this very intense training. Um, to make sure that we can make those, you know, those uh, high pressure decisions, especially when, you know, the fight or flight reflex is setting in and you got tunnel vision, you loss of depth perception, tachycardia, and all these things are kicking in. You know, you've got to be able to work through all of that and still make a, a good shot um, under pressure and still keep a circle of awareness about you and know what's going on. I still have to be aware that, hey, I'm landing on a roof and there might be a dude down there getting ready to shoot me in the face when I get off the helicopter, right? So there's a lot of the process at one time. And this is why, again, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. They picked the, they picked the right man, not the best man. Um, mm-hmm. And this is why it's one of the most difficult selection courses in the world. It ain't all about being physical. It's very physical. Um, but the whole idea is, to break you down physically. No matter how physical you are, they're going to break you down. They want to see how this functions under pressure. Oh, yeah. So. And what was what, – so we have this pulled up right here. This was Operation Acid Gambit. Mm-hmm. Who, was, who was this guy, Carl Muse? <clears throat> Kurt Muse. So Kurt Muse – Kurt, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Kurt Muse was a businessman. Okay, that's what he'll tell you. Um, living in Panama. But, you know, it's not hard to figure out what was really going on. So he's a businessman. He started a rotary club, you know, uh, amateur, uh, amateur radios, blah, blah, blah. But they were doing, uh, you know, SIGINT, signal intelligence. They were basically spoofing Noriega's uh, communications. Um, and then finally what happened was Noriega's military intelligence started to um, triangulate where he was emitting, you know, because they kept moving the transmitter, right? And they finally caught up with him at some point and they arrested him for espionage. Okay. And he ended up in Modelo prison. So, um, so he was literally locked up on the second floor. He had a, uh, security there the entire time. How and big is the prison? It's pretty good size. Um, it was four stories. Actually, there's a picture on, on the, on the internet also of the, um, uh, of the, of the prison itself. It's four stories. And, uh, of course, like all prisons, it was overcrowded. They had more people in there that they could fit in there, but they fit them all in there anyways. How big's the staff approximately? Well, at the time they had 64 guards on duty and they reinforced it with about another 60 Panamanian Defense Force soldiers because they knew we were coming. So we had 120 shooters on the ground level waiting for us. Is it public how many people you had on this mission? Uh, I think it is because they did a documentary on it. So it, it was uh, 23, 25. 25 of you guys yeah. against 125 of them. Just there in the ground. They're on the ground yeah. with the fortress. Yeah. So so there's another so i'll add to the story right because it's actually a really kind of cool story so we land um i run up i put the breach in charge on the doors we finally breach the doors i breach the doors we go in we we go down to second level the interrogator was given instructions that if anything happens outside the prison gunfire etc he was immediately go in and kill uh kurt muse done some wait wait, wait, wait. yeah he was gonna execute him immediately Oh, the pa- the Panamanian. Yeah, they were to execute him, right? And so, yeah. um, and what? Hold on a second. If this guy's like an ex- an expatriate trying to overthrow a government, why are we trying to rescue this dude? Well, there was no no. There's no proof that, that he was, that's what he was doing. Right? He was a businessman. 
right? And so sounds like he had some friends. Well, he may have, right? And so you know, he only he knows the truth. <clears throat> but all we know is he's American, and uh, and he's being locked up. And and by the, there was other incidents, right? So everybody's going, oh, there we go, you know, you know, starting wars. <clears throat> well, actually, at that point, up to this point, they'd already killed several Americans for no reason at all. They yeah. shot a second lieutenant on the street. Um, <laughs> And several other people, yeah, in Panama, right? Noriega had lost his mind at this point, so they were actually now targeting Americans everywhere. And so this is one of the reasons we decided we need to go in there. And we knew Kurt Muse was in prison. We're like, let's get this guy out. He's an asset as well. So that particular mission was the spearhead for the entire operation. We led with that operation. Um, we had to get him out first before everybody else came in—the paratroopers, the rangers, and so forth and so on. So um, we initiated the assault so to speak the uh, the invasion if you want to call it that <laughs> yeah you know what it is we, we invade the country right to, to, you know um sounds like it, a sylvester stallone movie well think about it they like call it just mission. cause right so it was a just cause <laughs> 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 i don't know anyways i'm not here to question all that all i know at the end of the day is i know what those they did i know what the what the pdf was doing they they tortured a lot of people they hurt a lot of people they killed a lot of people even their own um you know it, no it was not a good regime at all Hey guys, it's come to my attention that many of you are unaware that we have multiple other channels on YouTube and have for a while in at least two cases. So the first channel is at Julian Dory Clips, which we've been posting on for over a year. It has mid-form clips and short-form clips going out every single day, and it is huge to help us in the algorithm when those clips do well. So please go over there and subscribe. The link is in the description. The second page is at Julian Dory Daily, which is a brand new page with different editors posting exclusive content that is also mid-form and short-form clips. That link is in the description. And finally, we have a page called Best of JDP, which we put on ice for a while, but we just hired another editor to bring back. It is a shorts-only page. He will be making shorts exclusively for that channel. Once again, the link is in the description. You can check out all three down there in the description, and I hope to see you guys subscribe. Thank you. So, you know, we now we're in the building. We make it to the second floor. And here's an interesting story. So the interrogator lost his nerve. And I guess he wasn't, you know, he was quaking in his boots, not sure what's going on, but he knew something was going on. There's a lot of gunfire going on right now, a lot of explosions. And as one of our teams breached the, uh, the room where the interrogator was sitting, he got up and he ran into a shower stall and he had a, a handgun and he literally positioned himself, himself in the shower stall with a weapon mounted up or handgun, fake trained on the door, <laughs> waiting for the first Delta operator to come through it. The first Delta operator came through and he's no longer with us was a guy named James. Um, James saw him run in there. James followed him in there. James shot him four times in the chest. The guy never got his round off. Um, dropped him right there with a car 15. Um, speed, surprise, violence of action, right? Right there it was. Uh, three tenets of combat. And so... You know, so Muse was alive. We breached the, the jail cell door, got him out, put him on a helicopter. Is he shitting himself? Yeah. And, uh, well, he should have been. And, uh, and after what, and then what happened really was bad because. What took you guys so long? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, he was happy. He was a happy camper that he was getting out of there um, because he was, he was looking at probably going to get executed um, or never get out of prison for a very long time, if at all. So at this imagine, point. Imagine being in a Panamanian prison. Yeah, I could think of worse prison being too. By the way, uh, oh, I'm sure, yeah, but yeah. that's that's not yeah. a good one. Yeah, that's no, not it's, high it's on my not, list. No, it's not. You know, anywhere, any third world countries, um, for sure. <laughs> um, I live in Indonesia. I know. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. My dogs probably live better than some of these people do in some yeah. of these jails, man. But, um, anyways, we got. So my team is now on 
the third level. I'm laying on a balcony and I'm engaging across the courtyard. There's, you know, there's Panamanian forces on the other side shooting back at us. We're shooting back at them. And the guard towers, the barbershop, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's pitch black and it's so much noise and flashes of light. You know, there's a blackout now. It's just total chaos. And as I'm laying there, we're lined up waiting to go to the roof and the helicopter would come back and pick us up. All right. The four helicopters, the little birds. You could hear them buzzing. And uh, they had to land two by two. So what I didn't know was they, you know, Kurt was the first guy out. He, that team brought him out first. How many guys are on the ground in the prison with you? Um, well, we had guys on support positions, maybe a total of about 12 okay. inside there, right? And uh, so they get him out. They pack him up, put a helmet on him, body armor, pack him in the middle of a helicopter. They fly off. As they fly off the roof, they get shot down. And they crash into an alley, right? So we don't know that yet. We didn't know that happened. I'm laying downstairs on the second floor. I'm shooting away, and I'm waiting for somebody to tap me. Go, okay, let's go. We're trying to move, and nothing's happening. And I can hear helicopters coming and going. I'm like, okay, should we be leaving here soon? And so I remember reaching back with my hand to find my teammate, and I don't feel nothing. And then I reach back with my leg, and I start sweeping the floor, trying to feel somebody's foot or something. And I realize they're already gone. They forgot I was laying on the floor. They couldn't see me because it's so dark and all the gunfire. They literally left me inside the prison. And they're on the roof getting on the helicopters. And I'm laying there, and I can hear the Panamanians coming up the stairs. I can hear all the glass break. I can hear oh, them no. talking in Spanish, you know, blah, 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 you know, and they're coming up to fight, you know. And I'm laying there and go, holy shit, they left me in the prison. <laughs> so I get up, and I run like a scalded dog up the stairs, run out on the roof. And thank God there's a helicopter still sitting there. And I run over to my seat, but somebody else is sitting in it. And I'm like, ah, you know, we're like, yeah, it's my seat, you know, and I'm, you know, now I'm starting <laughs> to panic. Fuck off the helicopter. <laughs> and I don't know how the, where the confusion set. And finally he realized he was in the wrong, on the wrong helicopter. He got up and ran back to his helicopter and I got my seat back and, and we flew off. We were supposed to be the last helicopter out of 15 helicopters. No, I'm sorry. We were supposed to be the first helicopter. No, sorry. The last helicopter out of 15 to land at Howard Air Force Base. We were the only helicopter to come back and we're landing and go, where's everybody at? And we had, um, what's called JMAO. It's a basically a joint medical uh, unit. They were already set up, all the doctors, everything. They're all standing on, on the, uh, you know, on the tarmac, hands crossed, waiting for us to come in, ready for casualties. And, and we're the only helicopter lands. And my team leader looks at me, goes, you guys stay here. Hold on. You know, he runs over there and talking, blah, 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 blah. And he comes back. He goes, okay, put a fresh magazine in. We're going to go back in. Precious cargo just got shot down. <laughs> and I'm like, oh shit. Now I got scared. I wasn't scared before that, but now I'm scared because I know where we just came from. You know, we had stirred the hornet's nest. You know what a 50 caliber tracer looks like when it's coming at you? Nope. A flaming basketball. Hmm. Yeah. And like they're coming at us underneath our, our, our freaking helicopter. I'm lifting my legs. And you go, holy shit, you know? And guess what? They weren't Did you even... have the handlebar back then? No. I, I couldn't really grow mesh. I was still pretty young back then. You know, I had a little blonde thingy. You Everybody thought I was Chuck hand- Norris. You didn't have I had this? a Chuck Norris look back then. Everybody thought I was yeah, Chuck Norris. Yeah, but this is so good. <laughs> yeah, I know. This is good. We'll, we'll pretend like I had it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to pretend. Let's keep going. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so anyways, I'm like, oh, my God, you know. So we, we start spinning up, get ready to go back, and then we start seeing other helicopters come back. And then we got the word that uh, one of our ground units had recovered the, uh, the crash helicopter. They had taken casualties, and the only guy that actually didn't get hurt was Kurt Muse. Um, if you read the story, and by the way, it's in my book, not again, trying to put a plug in it, but American Badass. Link um, in description. Yeah, and, uh, and, and like these documentaries. So what happened was when the helicopter crashed, it was sitting on its side. Hinges were still running. Rotors were running. A couple of guys on one side had been shot. Um, one of the other guys, James, the guy that killed the interrogator, 
came off the pod and we're all tied in. He was swung underneath the skid. The skid took his feet, uh, his toes off his, one of his feet. Um, then my team leader, um, he was unknocked unconscious. Kurt Muse gets out. He thinks everybody's dead. It's just him now. So he grabs my team, assistant team leader's pistol and he's going to, He's going to fight for himself. And as he does that, he starts to stand up into the rotor blade. And my oh. assistant team leader sees it, jumps up and grabs him, but pulls him down. As he Ooh. does that, he takes the rotor strike to the head in the process. Literally shaves the helmet off, off of his head, knocks him out. Oh. And, uh, you know, so now everybody's unconscious, right? And then luckily, you know, the, uh, the quick reaction force that was on standby, they rolled in with APC. They picked everybody up and, and, and hauled them off. APC? Uh, Armored personnel care, sorry. For you, non military. No, I'll types. stop you when you do it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 they call them M 13s at the time, little like square box looking tanky things. Um, but um, the irony of it is uh, Tom, my assistant team leader on the team, that was his third helicopter, uh, second helicopter crash in a month. He, on the he rehearsal, survived both well, well, he actually had three. So the first one, was a hard landing. He got banged up pretty bad on that one for the rehearsals for the attack or for the rescue. Then the second one, he gets shot down. He's on medication for that thing, for the head injury. When we go back five months later, we're in the Panamanian, uh, in the Darien uh, jungle, uh, which by the way is all over the news with, you know, illegals coming across here. We were actually in the Darien jungle and we're getting ready to go fly and do another mission and our helicopter crashes again, a Blackhawk. Who it, the fuck is driving this helicopter? They're different helicopters. But it's Task Force 160. Actually, we're alive because of the pilots. They're that good. Um, the, the, this particular helicopter had a, a catastrophic failure of the number one engine. Mm. And uh, we had, you know, do it. we had an auxiliary tank with another 400 gallons worth of jet fuel inside the helicopter. You know, we had 15 packs, personal equipment, four crew. We were pretty heavy. And uh, as we were flying away, the hel- number one engine went out. We lost lift, hit a tree, snapped the rotor blades off, and we turned into a giant lawn dart. And uh, we're flying through the jungle with no lift, crashed. And that was the one that paralyzed Tom for the rest of his life. In oh. fact, he's still, uh, he's still paralyzed to this day. Um, and yeah, it was a bad thing. Actually, there was a couple of guys that were paralyzed. I ended up with a broken back, broken spent five back. months in a body cast. Um, you know, but, uh, but hey, I'm okay. My back still functions and I'm still standing up. So I'm grateful for that. But, uh, yeah, so the life and times of a Delta operator, and that's just one of thousands of stories, you know, Black Hawk down, you know, I mean, there's that, in fact, Black Hawk down was really about one team. Out of several teams, so you know they couldn't pack it all in one movie. But uh, wait, you were in that? Uh, I went there. Yeah. So that's that's another story too. Um, Gary Gordon was my. Well, please do tell. Yeah, I won't. Yeah, Gary Gordon was one of the um, Medal of Honor winners. He was actually on my team at, in the operator training course, so I knew Gary really well. And uh, you know the story with him. Obviously, he went fast roped in. Knowing he's not going to come back out, him and Randy Shugart, and uh, to save uh, Michael Durant, the pilot, um, from when the helicopter got shot down. And uh, the coolest start part about the story is these guys kept asking for permission three times. We'd like to go in. We would like to insert. And the commander's like, you know what you're asking, right? He goes, yeah, we know what we're asking. We want to go in and insert because the crew might still be alive. So they fast roped in two guys, man, two snipers. And... Uh, they were getting it on, man, with a lot of Somalis, a lot of them, and uh, close-range combat, and finally got down to, Randy was the first one, I believe, to get killed um, after prolonged engagement, mm-hmm. and then it got to the point where Gary, he ran, they, t- they pulled Michael Durant, the pilot, out, he was still alive, and they put him like in a little hooch, he had a broken back, he was in bad shape, and Gary ran in with a car 15, he goes, there's five bullets left in this weapon, sir, 
good luck. And he ran back out to pull his pistol. That's all he had left. And, and, uh, and he went down pretty hard after that, you know? So that's kind of, that's just one of the stories. Um, both Randy and uh, Gary got the uh, congressional medals of honor for that, you know? And so it takes, it takes cojones. It takes discipline. It takes purpose, man, to do something like knowing because those guys had families, they had children, you know, and to have, to go down and know that you're going to risk it all to save a man, you know, man, there is those, there's no greater love than that, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, there's just no greater love than that. And I hate when I hear people, you know, bad mouth in the military and we're a bunch of mindless machines to do what the government says. That's a bunch of BS. Okay. I don't hear a ton of people doing yeah, that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I have. And I read a lot, quite a bit, um, you know, and so at the end of the day, you know, hats off, you know, and I'm not saying hats off to me, but uh, to those that have, Really giving it all, man. You know, like oh, yeah. th- those guys. And, I, and I've lost a lot of friends. And, uh, man, you know, the saddest story, one of the saddest stories was I had a friend who was a SEAL. Yeah, he's a SEAL. And he and I worked together uh, with the government, right? We'll call, we'll call it that. And um, great guy. Him and his wife couldn't have kids, you know, for a long time. He wanted a child so bad. And um, Oh, is this post-career? On yeah, this, this, yeah, this one yeah. I was yeah, a government contractor. Um you know, for the, for the alphabet company. So, um, so one day they, they were trying to adopt a child. One day they got, the, they got, they were able to adopt a child, a little, uh, I believe it was a black baby. I can't remember, um, from the mom, a little girl. Um, and he was so happy, man. He was just elated. I was, I was really happy for him because I really saw, man, how bad they wanted these kids, kids for over the years. And soon about a year later, man, he, um, he got killed. Mm-hmm. In um in Iraq, uh, hit a um, IED, oh. and he was in a what was basically what's an MRAP. It's an armored car. They're, they're heavy. They're big, and this thing got launched in the air like sixty feet, yeah. you know, and killed everybody inside the inside the uh, uh, the vehicle. And I'm like, man, he's had a, a year ago. He adopted this little baby. They went and waiting forever, and boom, just like that, he's gone, you know. And there's a lot of stories like that, you know. And and oh uh, yeah, you know. Again, these are these are. These are good men doing, you know, and I don't want to say God's work, but they're doing the right thing, man. They're, tr- they're, they're in the process of trying to help other people. You know, when people talk about, you know, Iraq and, you know, and, you know, Afghanistan and some of the places I've been to, you know, good people, man, have been oppressed badly, especially by Saddam Hussein. I've seen what he's done. I've been to the palaces, um, you know, the sex palaces. These guys were, I've listened, I've interviewed um, witnesses. Um, I remember one particular farmer, his his property bordered uh, Uday, uh, Uday's property, the son the of Saddam Hussein, yeah, right? Yeah. And his cows wandered over to their, to their property. There's no fence line, but his cows were over there. He went to get them back and they're like, hey, get off the property. Oh, those are my cows. No, there are cows now, right? And he's, no, those are my cows. Oh yeah, those are your cows. Watch this. And they literally rounded up his wife and his kids, executed all of them in front oh. of him. Go, whose cows are they now? Right? And so, and they let him live, by the way. Um, and that was his story. And that was quite common to hear stuff like that, you know. Um, go into a building and you see scuff marks on the walls, right, from shoes, where they were literally hanging kids and, and adults from the rafters, hanging them, and they were kicking with their feet, and they're off the walls, and their scuff marks were being left on the walls, okay? Um, when you see stuff like that, when you hear stories about how Sodom, these sex palaces he had, they were really big palaces, swimming pools, all kinds of crap. They would literally, he would literally send his guys out, 
his henchmen, and they would literally drive down the road and find the best looking girls they could find. And if they were married or not, and that's a hot one there. Boop, they round them up. And guess what? You're going to be partying at Saddam Hussein's palace tonight, whether you want to or not. And they literally had sex dungeons, chains, handcuffs, Ooh. cocaine, you know, and they're banging these girls, and you know, and they did whatever they wanted to you these know, people. You know, if, if you look right here, just past where this picture on the wall is of the skyline, so a little up, maybe mm -hmm. about 10, 15 blocks, I believe, we'll have to double check this. I think it was across from Michael Bloomberg's townhouse or whatever it is in in manhattan on the upper east side saddam hussein had a place there that was a torture dungeon for his guys his intel guys to go find dissidents or whatever in america they'd take them there in the basement and they'd just fucking see <clears throat> i mean it's 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 animal shit the world is full of evil and and yes. here's what pisses me off uh particularly about americans is a lot of people haven't even left those boundaries of their state, let alone the borders of the country, you know. And then when they do, they, I've left the country before. They went to Cancun. So what, you know? <laughs> um, that's you know, that's not leaving the country, you know. I've lived in over a hundred, lived, traveled to, and worked in over one hundred and one countries. Okay, uh, I've been all around it. the planet, man. I've been to, I've been everywhere, and I've had the opportunity to see how other people's live, I've how they're treated, what they think of us, um, and it's very different from what people read in the media in America. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in a lot of ways, a lot of people hate us. Um, you know, for example, in ba I live in Bali, as you know, we talked about before the show. I live in Bali. I have a, I have a home also in, in the Philippines, and I have a home in Panama City Beach, Florida, which is where I'm currently at. I just came in a couple of days ago. But, uh, you know, now when we talk about freedom and police abuse, let me tell you something. My wife, you know, again, I mentioned before the show, my wife is Indonesian. My wife is Muslim, yeah. Um, and we were in Hong Kong. Literally walking down the street, and the police literally just walked up to her, pulled her into to the alley, and made her piss in a cup and get do a urinalysis. Why? Just because they looked at her, and they said, "Hey, you might maybe you're on drugs." And it literally, they go through her purse, make her piss in a cup, and do a Whoa. urinalysis. Okay, think about that for a minute. This is other countries. Oh yeah. Okay, I can go on and on with these stories. It's this is not an exception. Um, there, it gets worse than that, you know. And we don't have a lot of time to get get into the details. We got but, we got all day, real yeah. quick though. I just gotta stop and go to the bathroom. We'll, okay, we'll be right back. <laughs> We're back now. Before we we just stopped it. That's that's why I didn't know that happened to you. Twice. Wow. Yeah. Nuts. It's yeah. so normal. Crazy. But anyway, you, you were saying before we stopped with this that some of the things around the world, like we don't understand how lucky we are to have it the way we have it here. And I, I got to tell you, man, like I always try to check myself with that because it's easy to complain, and I do, about so many things going on in the country right now, just with people just not being able to talk to each other. It gets very, very exhausting, and you know, we yeah. all create the biggest problems we can on social media. But the basic things we're able to do every day from you know, waking up in the morning and having the right to go to the gym or just do what the fuck you want to do, you know, have yeah. a job, be able to pay your bills – it's not that easy in so many countries around the world. Yeah. And, and there's there's random shit that can happen where the government can have total control over every facet of your life. Social media, you know, what you post on social media could easily land you in jail or get you deported, especially oh, yeah. in Indonesia. Um, you say the wrong thing in there, boom, you're out of there. You know, and they'll find you. They'll hunt you down, look for you, you know. They're very active about it. Uh, unlike, you know, us, it's like, come on over, bring all your, bring in, just come on over. You don't do what you want. Try Try doing that crap in another country. Um, I don't care what it is, whether it's the Philippines, Indonesia, you know, any country, they're they're not going to tolerate you overstaying your visa or sneaking into their country. Oh, yeah. You know, they're not going to tolerate. They're going to find you, and they're gonna, there's going to be harsh penalties. You know, you're going to get kicked out. You know, we're the only country that does this crap. You know, and 
to our detriment at the end of the day, you know, it's to our own detriment. The rest of the world doesn't think like we do. And are we mm. better off? I would argue that no, we're not. Um, you know, America is not free. We're not free, you know, and, and we're manipulating. Why do you say that? Well, at the end of the day, you're not free because look, you, even now, particularly, right? You, if you say something that goes against, uh, you know, for example, we'll talk about COVID, you know, you don't believe COVID. COVID is a conspiracy. Okay, maybe maybe it is COVID, but it's not what it is. Or they make it out to be, and you start you get censored, right? We saw that happen with Facebook and 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 you know all these different uh, uh, social media sites got called out on and agreed. Yeah, the government kind of told us to shut us up, shut everybody up, you know. So who's really in charge here? Or do we really have free speech? Mm-hmm. Can you really say what you want to say? Can you really do you know? Do you really have that freedom? No, the IRS has got you by your nuts. Right. They're all now they're really going to get our nuts because once they have us on digital currency and that's all we have, you have lost all power, all freedom. You think about it. Did you, have you ever noticed? Um, I don't know when you on the ticket for Spirit Airlines, when you bought the ticket. But like when I buy my ticket, for example, United Airlines. Now what I'm noticing under the price is also my carbon footprint. Like That's kind of weird. Mm. You know, they got a carbon footprint under for, for the ticket I'm going to buy. That was never there before. And why is it there now? I'll tell you why it's there now. It's conditioning. What they're doing is conditioning to the fact that you have a carbon footprint, and eventually what's going to, once you get used to it, then they're going to charge you for it, right? And so what's going to happen is, look, the government might charge the airline, go, hey, you got to pay for carbon tax, but they're going to pay that cost on the, uh, pass that cost on to you, right? You're going to yes. pay for that carbon tax. Yes. And so, but anyways, all of a sudden, it's another way to tax you at the end of the day. So where does it stop? Um, does it stop at the gas pump? Or now you pump five gallons of gas and you go, huh, there's a carbon tax under there too. Because my car, I bought five gallons of gas, that's going to turn into this much carbon, mm. right? So you see how this is working? Um, and so, I don't even know how I got down this, on this road here. But uh, at the end of the day, we're not in control of our lives. Um, everybody's got a piece of your ass. The government has a piece of your ass. Uh, the, the legal system has a piece of your ass. Law enforcement, your employers. Every you've portioned out your power to quite a few people, and you have very little power of your own. Very people are really sovereign, and those that are are very wealthy. And even those don't really have full control of their lives. Even in Indonesia, which is one of the reasons I live there, just to escape all the madness from this country. But even there, I'm not really free because I still fall under the you know the rule of the local government, you know, and of the national government. You know, they still have a hand on me, but I actually have a little bit more freedom there than I do here. Um, it's kind of like, again, I, I told partner here before we did the show, I said, you know, Bali's what, you know, Indonesia is one of those last places on the earth where, you know, that life is still pretty good. And I always joke with my friends, my American friends and my expats, you know, we always giggle and laugh around the table and like, Hey man, shh, don't tell all your friends. They'll come over here and wreck it for us. You know, <laughs> we're living a pretty good life, you know? Yeah. And I mentioned that there's two girls earlier. It's, it's that kind of stuff that, uh, there's no tolerance for it. And, uh, there's a, they have a very dim view, uh, the rest of the rule of what we do. Um, they're, they're scratching their head going, how, how can you justify, how can you justify changing children's sex? But, you know, they're not old enough to join the military, not old enough to drink beer and drive a car. But, you know, there's just so much weirdness. The rest of the world has questions. And, uh, you know, and I get, I'm on that side of the world where I get to see and hear this stuff. And and I don't even try to answer it. I'm just like, you know what? I, I don't know how to answer it. I just, just leave me out of this argument, man. I'm just here to live my life, enjoy what I'm doing here in my wife and my family. And, and that's it, you know, live in paradise, so to speak. Right. It does feel like sometimes the whole 
thing as like a long reality TV show, though, because we we fight over, uh, you know, some things that are very legit that maybe are a problem in society moving forward with how we go about certain issues. But we also then fight over things that are such minute little examples in our culture and make them the main thing and make them the right. focus of the rest yeah. of the world. And it feels like sometimes it's just some giant distraction to get everyone fucking pissing yeah. around the card table together. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I think so too. I think a lot of it's just a distractor, you know? Um, you know, we were talking in the car earlier about, you know, this, this year is kind of the year of the apocalypse, you know, when you think about it, I don't think there's going to be a 2024 election. It's not going to be a good one. If Wait, there is. what? I don't think there's going to be a 2024 election. What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, I don't think there will be. I don't think there will be. With the way things are going. You don't think we're going to have an election in this country? I think what we're going to have is war, is what I think we're going to you have. You think we're going to have war in this country? I think so. You want to take a bet on that right now? I'm not going to take a bet, but that's my inclination. You know, all right, so you're not going to take a bet? Because <laughs> I'll bet fucking 10 Gs right now. That's not happening. <laughs> Damn, 100%. <laughs> no, I think I think there will be. One, here's why. They're going to get rid of Trump. They're going to do something. One, two, and, and I think we're at the... We're at the breaking point when it comes to who's politics. they? Th his base, right? So those that support him, right? I no, think, no, but who's they doing this? Well, obviously it's the opposition, right? The left, the party on the left, the Democrats, for example, um, the the powers that be, so forth that are actually pulling all the the, the uh, pulling all the strings right now. I don't think there's going to be an election. I think we're also going to be in a war with Russia by the end of the summer, not because the Russians are bad, um, and I know that sounds really bad, but. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't think about how did Russia get into this position in Ukraine to start with? Did they just say, oh, we're just going to invade it and take over the country? So go back into the 70s, right? NATO. When NATO first started out, what is it, 13 countries? We said, hey, we're not going to expand beyond that. We're never going to be knocking on your door, Russia. Don't worry. Um, here we are 30 countries later. We're on their door. Um, and we're doing the same thing that Russia did. When, when John Cuban F. Kennedy, missile crisis. The Cuban yeah. Missile Crisis, right? Yeah. It's like, get your missiles off that island, get them off our doorstep, we're going to war. And it did. So we did the same thing, but we didn't, we didn't back off. And so, and I don't believe that the Russians' goal is to take all of Ukraine back. It's certain provinces or portions of that country. And here's the other irony, right? So you have the uh, ASOF brigades, right? What are they? They're Nazi brigades. Literally, they're wearing swastikas, okay? And, and we're... So we're yelling about fascism and Nazism, yet we're supporting a Nazi fascist Yeah, well, regime. it is a small, it's a small percentage. It of doesn't them, matter, right? But, so, <laughs> I mean, we have neo-Nazis here in America. Right. And we, yeah, right? We're, yeah, and we're attacking them left and right, right? So, and we're, we're calling everybody a, a fascist, a neo-Nazi. Right. We also aren't being invaded right now. I got to defend them on that because, and, and I'm not defending the, the Azov Battalion is disgusting, you know, I salute. Whatever happens to them in war, I'm not going to feel bad. But I'm just saying, like, and, and I got a lot of problems with, with that war and the fact that there's no real effort for peace. We're funding it over and over and over again. We're funding death yeah. here. I'm with you on yeah. all that. I think that, you know, some of the – unfortunately, what comes of it is everything becomes politicized because we have involved ourselves politically in it. Well, yeah. At the end of the day, what, what do we get out of it? Nothing, right? We spend a lot of money supporting this country um, – for some very dubious reasons. Oh, they're going to um, get some out of you know? it. Who's oh, going to rebuild that place? Absolutely, man. They're yeah. making they're making bank. All that money we've given them so far, you know, hey, man, there's people in this country that could use that money, you know? And I mean, Agreed. we get the guys in Hawaii, 700 bucks, their whole, everything got burned out here, Agreed. 700 bucks, but we're sending millions and millions of our tax money to a, to a country for a war that doesn't involve us. Why, why are we even involved in this thing? 
There, I'll tell you what really sat wrong with me is when you saw Zelensky a few weeks ago in America. He's he's literally meeting and taking photo ops with all the leaders of all the defense companies. Exactly, it's like Raytheon, Lockheed, everywhere. It's not even the meme writes itself, you know. And I'm not even blaming him in that situation. I'm looking at us going. When people sit here and scream about the military industrial complex, there it is. There it is, man. Yeah. Like, it doesn't get more blatant than that. And, you know, they're making content with them, like with the nice camera shot, like, hey, like a, like a fucking Allstate commercial. Like, yeah. they're all sitting there shaking hands, kissing babies. But they're really just funding more death in a war that is, is I mean, I, I, I've, I've had Mark Turner in here who's been over there since like day one on and off training Ukrainian battalions and stuff. He asked us to do a site survey. Can you kind of go over all the locations, this location, and all the locations we have and see where our guys are and give us your assessment? So we start doing that, and they were putting snipers up in a clock tower. It's like you've been watching Saving Private Ryan too much, you know? Like you, <laughs> It's not a good place to put a sniper. Contrary to popular belief, you don't put snipers in clock towers, right? And Why is that? Because they're easy to pick off up there? Yeah, you're stuck up there, yeah. right? You're stuck up there, one tank rolling through, takes care of everything. I mean, you've seen that and saving private ryan right yeah. i mean i don't know why everybody thinks that's a thing that guy actually he was a cool character in that movie but he got blown away by a tank because he's up in a bell tower or whatever he's like it's an unwinnable war for everyone right these fucking two armies sit there and fight over for they fight for two weeks over 20 yards yeah it's just not it's just death yeah and it's yeah it's an <laughs> it's a racket you know at the end of the day it's, you know war is a racket so to speak mm. and it is and unfortunately i hate to you know be the one to say that but uh i've but well, you profit off that racket, though, too, doing what you do, no? Unfortunately, I do, you know. Well, fortunately for me, I do. Um, it is what it is, you know. People need my help. And look, at the end of the day, I do what I think is the right thing to do. I will not go and fight in Ukraine. You know, I've been asked if I'd be willing to go. I was like, why? I ain't got nothing to do with us. And not only that, I don't agree with that war, okay? So there's a part of me, a moral side of me, that picks and chooses the fights I want to get involved in. Uh, if you said to me, hey, uh, you know, do you want to go to wherever, Yemen, and kill ISIS or Al-Qaeda? Sign me up. Fuck yeah. You're going to pay me money, I'm going to do it, you know, <laughs> because I've seen what they, they're capable of doing, right? And so I don't have a problem with that. Um, somebody's got to do it, and if you can't do it and you need me to do it, okay, if you're paying me, I'll go do it, you know? And, you know, God is my money. No, actually, you know what? Um, at the end of the day, if I'm going to take a risk, I won't be paid for it because I got family too that need to feed, that I need to feed, right? So, um, but I'm going over this to help people, hopefully, and get rid of the evil that would destroy everybody else. Same thing with Afghanistan and Iraq. I've seen the evil that these people will, are willing to do. And most people sit, you know, behind their computer at their TV at home mm -hmm. and they've just never been there. But yeah. once you've been there and you've seen it, it's like, man, you know. Well, well I want to go back to that too, because you've been talking about Iraq a little bit. And I don't want to, I want to back down from my opinions that when, when I'm sitting across from guys like you who I respect who were there. And, and I always do say this about that war as someone sitting in an armchair who didn't fight in it. The guys who go there, the guys who do the job, you guys are following orders. You're doing what you're supposed to do. I got all the respect in the world for that. And I, I think the military gets put in a bad position because they got to answer for decisions that happen in Washington, D.C. Right. that they don't get to make, no matter how high up they are in many cases. But you look at that war, obviously Saddam, bad guy, like not good guy. Mm. His sons were horrible. His, his reign was tyrannical. He was sociopathic. At the same time, though, I do always struggle with the idea of 
two things. Number one, is it our job to be the world police at all times in all places? And number two, did we not end up leaving it worse than we found it? Because I would argue that as bad as he was and as awful of a person as he was and the things he would do that that you laid out yeah. tragically, some of the examples of, of how bad it would get, it was at least more controlled than it is now where it's just this power vacuum of, of almost tribes of terrorism that is ripe for the taking. Well, exactly. And I totally agree, right? We should not be policing the rest of the world. Um, and two... Classic example, Kabul, 20 years, and what do we do? We had $80 billion worth of equipment oh, yeah, over to the Taliban. And yeah. what, for all for what? For not. And, and I always bring this argument up too. It's very true. We went in there with a power, uh, historic at the time paramilitary operation, took control of the situation. The one thing we failed to do was actually get bin Laden himself. We got to that 10 years later. And then all the resources started going to Iraq. That's where Afghanistan – you talk to everyone who's been there, and I haven't asked you about it as much to this point in, in our conversation. But you talk to everyone who's been there. That's where it went wrong because it, it became like the little redheaded stepchild. Oh, yeah, that problem, right? Yeah. And then it builds up. The Taliban never left, right? It's still there. And then 20 years later, it's it's the same as it was when we left it. Yeah, probably worse, actually. Probably worse, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, again, you know, so by – Look, you can't blame the military for any of that. Okay, sure. you got to blame who? The politicians. Yes, I and, agree. And who? And the politicians answer to the American people. Okay, so why are the American people not holding the politicians accountable? Okay, that's why I want to know. Why are we not holding them accountable? We make a lot of noise, but nothing happens. Why did those officers and Biden, who made that call in Kabul, not get hung out to dry for that? That they. They cost more lives and more Americans, and look where we are today. And by the way, now we've got Taliban offering to go in and help Hamas fight the Israelis with our weapon systems. Like, wow. Wait, what? Can you explain that? Yeah. So I don't know, about a month ago, the Taliban was actually offering to, to come to, to, uh, to fight with, on behalf of the Hamas with American systems, weapon systems, to fight the Israelis. So we're at this point now, you know, now we've got uh, Hezbollah, we've got, you know, the whole place is getting ready to boil over in any minute now. Have we, have we finished the jobs, both of them? You know, the thing with Iraq, I, you're right, I we never really finished the job. It just, we just languished there. We talked a lot of talk, but nothing ever actually, nothing ever actually happened. And, with Afghanistan, you mean? And both, Iraq and Afghanistan, right? So nothing really got shut down. We still had a presence there, and people were still, particularly Americans, are still being targeted. Same thing with Afghanistan. Um, we tried to fight the war, and sometimes I think, you know, again, it comes back to politics. Politicians are afraid um, of perceptions, right? So, oh, of course. So, for yeah. example, you know, one of the problems, one of the issues we always had to deal with in Afghanistan is if we rolled up a bad guy, okay, all of a sudden we can't interrogate him. All you can do is interview him, and you can only interview him for three days. And then after three days, you can't do anything bad to him. You have to feed him, give him a bed, you ask him questions. You don't get the answers you want. You have to release him with all his gear and stuff, um, and let him go. In fact, it got to a point where when I did roll up guys, the first question out of our mouth was, "Are you arresting me as a terrorist or as a criminal?" 
And what they were hoping you would say is a terrorist because they know, okay, I'm going to get locked up for three days. I just shut my mouth. They're going to feed me, give me a bed to sleep mm. in, take care of me, give me my stuff, and I get to leave. If you arrest them as a criminal, you hand them over to the Afghan National Police, A&P. That's a different story. <laughs> That's going to be a bad story there, right? And so they were hoping to God it was terrorism and not uh, criminal, right? So they, they, they started gaming it. I've actually caught guys. I'm like, you again? You know? <laughs> Yes, hey. remember, I'm a terrorist. Get, the, yeah, get it yeah. right. <laughs> and they were literally, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, you again? You know, I, I arrest guys multiple times, mm. you know, roll them up because we were allowed to shoot them. You know, we couldn't interrogate them. And, you know, this all started with John McCain and his bullshit about, you know, interrogations don't work. I'm here to tell you right now, interrogations work. So and you're, you don't, you're on you're on the you're on the bring your bucket and towel. You do not have to do that. You do not have to pull fingernails out, all that crap. There's a different way to do it. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's oh, a not, much, that didn't go the direction I thought. Yeah, no. So when you say interrogation, like good cop, bad cop routine. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. And uh it's psychological. Psycho men are easy to breed psychologically. Wait, okay. John McCain was against interrogations yeah. without torture? Absolutely. What the fuck was Absolutely. wrong with him? Exactly, right? And I said he's a that's sellout. Fine. That, what, that's fine. If you're not like we can sit here and have an argument about torture, but like if you're not torturing them, what the fuck is the argument? Right. What exactly. does he want you to do? Well, exactly. And that's the problem we had was now we can't do anything because of public perception, politics. You know, God forbid you get caught in any way. You couldn't even call a guy a name. If I had a and what? We, by the way, we couldn't. But who's going to know? Wait, wait, wait. We couldn't even call them pr uh, prisoners, POWs. We had to call them pucks, personnel under control. So if I had a puck, I couldn't go, hey, motherfucker, you stupid son of a bitch. Right there, that there was a charge. Are you offense. recording this, though? Is it on camera? Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The guy to your left and right now can report you. And it will. You got a bunch For of. For calling someone a you motherfucker. You have a bunch of weenies. Yeah, you, you got have to be kidding. I'm me. not joking, dude. I've been to I've been to camps where I've been to, I was at a camp one time. There was only um, let me get this right nine Americans. All right, me and another paramilitary guy. The rest were staffers. Okay, and we call them combat tourists. You know, they're at some embassy. You know, in Paris, and it's like, oh, I want to go to I want to go to Afghanistan, right? <laughs> so they get to so they get to go to a FOB, a forward operating base, out there in in in, in, in you know in the Indian country, and. And they're out there, and they're going to do their gear out there in a secure camp, protected by me and my men, my Afghans or whatever. And then they get to go, hey, I was in Afghanistan. I was in combat. I was in a war zone, right? You didn't do nothing. I remember I had this one chick walking around without a 9 millimeter, without a pistol. And I go, you know, we had what we had was we had a camp, and then we had a small cantonment area inside where we all stayed, right? So it's like, you know, this is the fallback. This is Alamo. Things go bad with our own guys. If they turn on us, which they do sometimes, right? We have a little Alamo we can kind of hold up and defend ourselves. And uh, But you never assume that you're safe. You have to assume that there's always going to be somebody because we know we had Taliban in our ranks. We know that, okay, all the time. You you go out and recruit guys. You think he's squared away, but he's actually working mm. for the opposition, right? So you actually had Taliban in the ranks. So you had to be prepared for that. That means you carry your gun. You sleep with your gun. You got your eyes open behind your head. She's walking around. I'm like, where's your firearm? I'm against firearms. Oh, no. Right? It was oh, that. It was no. that, And that was very common, by the way. I'm against firearms. Yeah. I'm only in fucking Afghanistan. Exactly. And I told her, I said, you know what? Oh, you're you carry the firearm. Not. I don't care if you're against it. You carry the firearm to protect me and the rest of the people here. You should have given have her fight. like a fucking machete or something. I should have punched her nose, but, uh, you know, um, I should have threw her out there with the wolves. I go, here you go. See, uh, see how you do without a knife, uh, uh, without a gun, you know? Uh, <laughs> they, did she they, bring some pepper spray? 
harsh words, you know, but in low attitude, you know. <laughs> Stay back, terrorist. <laughs> freaking, freaking Karen, man. That's what you know. Oh my god. Uh, but yeah, you know. Ooh. But th that's the reality of it, man. What's going on out there? Um, man, we had it, it got so bad. I can tell you, Jim Diorio definitely didn't follow those interrogation rules. That I can assure. Our yeah. guy, Jim, who's special forces and then yeah. FBI, one of his jobs once he was at FBI was to be an international interrogator in yeah. these zones. There were no cameras in those cells. I'll put it that well, way. Well, yeah, and there's not. But the problem is it got so political and you've got people like Karen who want to carry a gun. If she sees or hears that you're doing something, she's going to rat you out. Yeah, I think he locked yeah. Karen in the closet. Yeah. I'm pretty sure like Jim tied up people like that. Yeah. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we we actually had a guy come out. He was an EO officer, right? A what? Uh, um, equal opportunity, right? Sexual harassment. He gave us a sexual. Think about this. I'm at a camp with about 500 pipe hitters. Um, there's only like nine of nine of us, right, dudes? And uh, and that Karen doesn't mean what you think, Alessi. And, and Karen, right? And so, <laughs> and so we're Alessi's like, okay, fucking crying over here. You know, telling, okay, tonight this guy's going to show up and he's going to give you guys a class on, you know, uh, EO and sexual harassment. And like, what? You know, and we're in a, we're literally in Fort Apache, man. We're, we're in the heart of Taliban country all around us. We're, we're getting in firefights every morning. I'm launching mortars at the Taliban who's launching mortars at me, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm on combat they're, operations. They're holding up a bear going, where did, it, where did he touch you? Well, you know what? <laughs> He actually came out and he's like counseling us on as a group. Look, you can't call each other motherfucker. You oh, know, no. you, you can't go, hey, bitch. You know, you can't say stuff <sighs> like that. And I'm like, huh? And I'm <sighs> like, I can't even say motherfucker. I was like, you know, the other night I had a guy take his night vision goggles off in the middle of a fucking firefight. And I yelled at him through, through my interpreter said, put your goggles on. And he put them on, and two minutes later, he took them off, and I yell at him again, he put them back on, and then finally I started calling him names. I said, I had to call names, and I had to threaten the guy because him not wearing goggles puts us all in jeopardy, right? And so, and then the next day, I said, get that guy's name. Next day, I had him as assistant team leader, team leader, out filling sandbags, in broad daylight, with their night vision goggles and uh, helmets on in the daylight, just shoveling some sandbags. I go, you want to be dumb? I'll make you strong, you know? But, you know, <laughs> all that stuff was like foreboding. It's like, you know, you can't do that. Like, what? We're in combat. We're in combat. And, yeah. and these guys, that's what they don't, you know, they don't understand, you know, hey, sir, would you please put your night vision goggles on and fight, you know? No, you got to yell at, you got to put a boot in their ass. It's not because you hate them. It's actually because you love us and we love each other and we all want to go home together. And sometimes I got to really raise my voice and maybe put hands on you, you know? But man, we got this whole class on this thing and I was like, we're doomed, man. We are, there's no way we're winning this war. Not with this kind of shit going on, you know? Mm. Um just you know it's everywhere man and uh you know this whole i don't know i don't even know what to tell you about it anymore this is why again i'm like you know what count me out i'm living in bali so <laughs> you know <clears throat> it's crazy oh my god how long have you been in bali again uh i've been in bali six years all together i've been in indonesia about eight eight and a half years mm. i used to live in jakarta um so yeah it's a kind of long story how i got there so backing up, so we asked me in the beginning, so man, we went alone. <laughs> we went a yeah, big we're, circle. <laughs> we're coming back to the beginning now, so, too. So what happened was, 2001, I retired from the military. I was in 3rd Special Forces Group. I was a Green Beret, a Wait, stealth you, operator. you retired in 01? Yeah. What month? Uh, right before 9-11, six weeks before 9-11. Yeah, July. Wow. So, yeah, but at that point, I'd already seen quite a bit of combat. Um, 
the unit is already in combat long before anybody else had seen any combat. You know, it's it's just not it's just not advertised. But uh, and that doesn't even mean nothing. So I get out. I start my own company, and 9-11 happens, um, and then I get recruited. Business is a booming. Yeah, I get recruited by the government. Um, I'm also doing a lot of consulting in the nuclear security industry, um, all the commercial nuclear power plants in the United States. I pretty much serviced 42 out of 64 plants, made a lot of money. Uh, 2004 G4S, Wackenhut, bought my company. Um, why? Because I couldn't rid of the competition because I was basically blocking them at every turn. Um, I reincorporated. I said, yeah, you can buy this company. Take it. They took the company. I reincorporated another company doing the same thing. I said, like, you want to buy this one too? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and I built it up till 2011. I sold it to another company. Um, concurrently, I'm working for, you know, OGA, the government. Um, OG, what does that stand for? We'll call it uh, Office of Government Affairs. How about that? That's a good, that's a good okay. one. The alphabet company, something like that. Gotcha. All right. So anyways, um, I'm still hold a, held a certain... Uh, agreements but anyways um you can read into it <clears throat> so then what happened was 2011 came around and i got in, in another ambush and i had this epiphany so i was talking to a company that said they wanted to buy my company so i'm kind of concurrently running one company but i'm still a warfighter downrange and so they said if you can get us a contract with this particular oil company and this is what we're looking for we'll buy your company and I thought about, you know what, this might be a way out of the war for me because I'm getting a little long in the tooth, you know, and I'm getting tired of getting ambushed in firefights, mm. you know, and I got kids and family. So what happened was um, I was I got ambushed one night pretty bad. And I remember sitting there in the vehicle thinking, if I get through this one, I said, I'm, I'm it. I'm hanging up the guns. I'm done. Going to go home and, you know, do my other stuff, security, blah, 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 blah. Well, at the same time, I got discovered by Discovery Channel. Imagine that. And <laughs> another one. Right. How many people walk in yeah. here with Discovery Channel? Yeah, stores? you know. So I'm on Discovery Channel and and I was on a show called One Man Army. Apparently I did pretty well. <laughs> and and uh, I get a call from NBC going, Hey, we got another TV, uh, we got a movie a TV show we're making called Stars Earned Stripes. Uh, would you be interested in trying out? I thought, well, man, I didn't think this would happen again. I just thought it was a one off, you know. And uh so next thing you know, out of 2,000 applicants, I think, uh, I was one of eight selected uh, to be on Stars and Stripes with Terry Crews, Eva Torres, Dean Kane, Oh, wow. Um, Chris Kyle. You know, there's quite a few of us on there. Wait, like American Sniper, Chris Kyle? Yeah. And, uh, no shit. And, yeah, absolutely. And so, anyways, wow, now I'm going to be in Hollywood. So, I ended, yeah, I ended up being in Hollywood, sold my company, uh, the second company, and doing pretty well for myself. Spent a couple years doing movies, TV shows. Would you, would you, when you say that, like actually in the movies? Yeah. Yeah. No shit. Yeah. Um, you what could, were you in? You can look it up, man. I, I was on, I was on FX, NBC. I was on a legit librarians. Um, I was with another company called Zulu 7. We made a bunch of zombie movies. Um, anyways, just. You were a zombie in the movies? Actually, on one of them I was. I turned into a zombie, right? I was like the good guy who got bit and then turned into this raging lunatic. With the um, handlebar? I had everything, man. Yeah, and the big veins sticking out of their heads. Bigger than the ones I already have. <laughs> and, uh, but anyways, I, I did that for a few years and, uh, it just, uh, it just didn't feel right, you know. Just uh, I can't see you on movie sets for too long, man. Man, I wanted to kill people, man. It's like you know, <laughs> these people are so pretentious. Not all of them. There was actually some really good people. I'm not gonna say that, but some of them was like Jesus Christ, Jiminy, you know. And um, it's 
it's hard work. It really was hard work. I'm not going to lie, you know. Um, and I had a lot of respect for people in that industry. But just for me personally, I felt like, you know, I'm faking the funk. This is not what I do. I do the real thing. I don't pretend to do the real thing, right, like these guys. So mm. I got this calling, and I ended up going to Hong Kong and uh, became part of a, uh, a security detail that ran a, uh, I eventually became uh, one of the senior leaders, I guess, if you will, for a uh, protection detail for a multi-billionaire investment banker over there. And a uh, very well-known fellow, I won't mention his name, but uh, anyways, I did that for a while. And then that's where I met my wife, who's Indonesian. Uh, she went back to Indonesia. Ah. And then I followed her back to Indonesia, you know. Gotcha. Question, That's how it goes. The question earlier was, why'd you go to Indonesia? Because I was following some trim, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I, I followed her over there and we started hanging out, running around, you know, just traveling the country, sightseeing. And one thing led to another. I saw some opportunities, business opportunities, and I expanded on that. And then before you know it, I'm partners with another billionaire in Jakarta uh, for a little while. That didn't quite work out. Well, is there like a phone book of mercenaries around the world? Like if I'm, you know, dictator X or president Y, can I just like whip out a book and be no. like, oh, let's go to the, oh yeah, C's, Comstock, call them up. Like, no, is that how it works? No, it's, it's a network, right? It's a network. It's certain people, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, no, there's no, there's no <laughs> website, you know, you know. One eight hundred assassins are us. <laughs> There's nothing like that, you know. It's basically a network, and and people, you know, they come to you and they go, "Hey, you know, I got a job. You know, would you be interested?" You know, and so it kind of it kind of works like that. Whose car are we taking? Yeah, right. <laughs> Whose car <are> we taking? <laughs> exactly. That's hilarious. Um, but we we jump we jump forward to that. I want to come back to your whole like post military career and how you got into some of these war zones and stuff. But we had been talking a little bit ago now about the beginning of your career and you going through all the schooling and everything. And what I wanted to get to was where you ended up first. So this is now like I'm guessing like 1983, 1984. You go to it to your Delta team. You get assigned to whatever team that is. You're not allowed to say where it was or how big it was for security reasons. But is it the kind of thing where you're immediately being de deployed on on special missions, or how did it work? Yeah. What was so the ramp up. So one thing about the unit, it's. So, okay, tier one, what does that mean? Everybody goes, you know, they're tier one, they're tier two, whatever. Tier one. Nobody really knows what that means. I'll tell you what it means. Tier one means uh, if a unit is designated as tier one, they're always, even in peacetime, in a constant state of warfare, and they're being funded as such, right? So Delta is tier one. It's always considered, um, it always has its war footing. It's always considered in a state of war because they're always running ops, things like that, of different levels, okay? Um, a, nuclear, a nuclear powered submarine is a tier one asset. Certain airplanes are tier one assets, right? And then you have tier two. Uh, what would be a tier two asset? Um, Green Berets, uh, Navy SEALs. I call them vanilla SEALs, right? Not not SEAL Team 6. Um, they would be considered black. They're, they would be tier one. But the other uh, vanilla teams that are not special operations, if you will, um, are considered tier two. Uh, Rangers, some of the Ranger battalions are tier one because they support some of the other spec ops units. So there's different levels. So tier one, tier two, tier three, right? Um, and because I was in that organization, we're in a constant state of war. So we're doing operations all the time. May not always be war fighting, but it's something related to that space. Um, and the other thing that, you know, operator, what is a Delta force operator, right? Now everybody's hijacked the word operator. Um, what does the operator actually mean? Well, if you're a Delta force operator, you're not always operating as a soldier, 
sometimes you're operating um, under the guise or auspices of another government agency, right? You're badged credential through them, and or you might actually be out working as a civilian, right? And so when it comes down to your evaluation reports, when they're trying to compare you to your peer group, say in special forces, all right, how to distinguish your mission from what they do, right? And so there it is, right? If I'm if I'm doing all kinds of, you know, you're just doing your MOS-related job, but I'm over here doing stuff like, you know, whatever, you know, in, in a suit one day and, you know, tennis shorts the next day and the other day in a military uniform, you know, um, how do you, how do you quantify and qualify that, right? You know, so there, that was an issue for a long time is like, how do we promote our guys that don't exist, you know, and they do all this other special stuff. Um, so they're, you know, they, they sort of, they've worked through all that at this point, but now, you know, every swinging dick thinks he's an operator. You know, you got, I'm a ranger operator. I'm a seal operator. I'm a police operator. It's like, Jesus Christ, man. You know, it, it sounds cool. Everybody wants to be an operator, but you know what? You want to be an operator, go earn it. Take the long walk is what I always say. You know, if you're a seal, you're a seal. If you're a green beret, you're a green beret. If you're a ranger, you're a ranger, you're a marine, you're a marine. You know, you're a cop, you're a cop. You're SWAT, you're SWAT, you know? That's it. Just be happy with what you are, man. Stop, you know, stop trying to be more than what you are. Just you know, it, the name doesn't mean nothing. Right. It's the job, right? right? Just be proud of what you've done. Nobody's judging you. Nobody's looking down on you. You know, if you want to be something better, more elite, then go for it. Go work work for it. You know, go earn it. Don't just uh, freaking hijack a name, you know? Right. But it's, again, it's the human condition, right? We just, humans are weird. Yeah. So when you get in now, what, where, do you remember your first mission? Actually, my first mission was an 82nd. Grenada, 1983. Yeah. Oh, wait, is this... What movie was that story? To, oh, Clint Wolf of Wall Street, where he's like, you ever hear of Grenada? Oh, yeah. And, and he's like, no. And he said, it's basically this country we went in, we, we said we could wipe you off the fucking map. You're Grenada right now. He's pointing at Jordan Belfort yeah. when they got him, when they got him to a T. So what what was... Can you just explain the background there and what was yeah. happening? So, again, Cubans, right? So the Cubans were in Grenada, <laughs> you know, and... and, and Anyways, political reasons. I love how you said again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's communism, right? It's trying to it's trying to spread. And so he's in Grenada, and the decision was made that we've got to liberate Grenada from the Cubans, right? The communist Cubans. And I was in the 82nd Airborne Division at the time. And what we did was, you know, you have the island of Grenada, which is not very big, and then you got surrounding smaller islands. Um, and and so what we needed to do is do reconnaissance on the smaller islands, set up what we call OPs, um, observation positions, observation posts, where we're looking for, listening for, or waiting for Cubans and PRA, which is um, People's Republic of uh, Grenada, PRG, I believe it's called. It's been a while. Prague, I think is what it's called. Anyways, Grenadian uh, militia that was sympathetic to the Cubans. Um, they had cached a lot of weapon systems on these islands, and what they were doing is going out at night on boats and recovering them. You know, guerrilla warfare is what it was. And what we did is we occupied these small islands, waited for them to come, and then we'd either call for help or we just go ahead and engage them um, as they um, as they came to the islands. In fact, uh, two of the most decorated soldiers out of Grenada came out of my platoon, out of my lure platoon, um, for combat. So um, heroism, all kinds of stuff, but. Uh, Interesting story about that. I was actually in school. I was in, in a school called Recondo School. So I happened to be in Recondo School at the time and uh, on Fort Bragg. And I remember one morning, we heard all these airplanes flying around above. It's like, what's going on? We got all these fast movers up there. You know, something was buzzing and something was going on. And and then they had, you know, the, the uh, cadre pulls together, had a formation. They go, if you hear your name, call, report back to the unit. So they started naming all these names and like, what is going on here? And 
by the time I got back to the unit, my unit had already left. They were already in Grenada, right? And I'm like, damn, so I got left behind. And so I'm like, oh, how do I get how do I get there to be part of this, you know, mm. the fun, right? So I managed to get on another logistics flight and escort a bunch of batteries and logistics and radios and stuff on a C-141, fly into Grenada. So I show up uh, late in the afternoon, almost dark, uh, you know, dusk, when I show up. And we land, and the problem was the airplanes, once they land, they got to take back off because, there's, you know, they could get bombed and blown up and targeted on the, on the runway. So it was still hot. So we land, unload all this crap, you know, and I'm sitting on this pallet with all these batteries and stuff, and I'm expecting somebody from my platoon to be there to pick me up with a truck and haul this stuff off because they knew I was coming, or so I thought. And so nobody shows up, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting, and there's two guys on the drop on the uh, on the uh, uh, what do you call it, on the airstrip, Air Force uh, Safety Officer ASO, I believe he's called, and uh, Commander. And they're like, hey, Sarge, or specialist. I was a spec four at the time. Hey, spec four, um, you can't stay here. You got to leave. And I'm like, yeah, where am I supposed to go? Nobody's here to pick me up, you know? And, well, you can't stay here. And I'm like, I got all these batteries. You can't stay here. Mm. I couldn't believe I had this argument with these guys. And I'm like, dude, where am I supposed to go if I can't stay here, right? And uh, they're like, well, I don't know, but you can't stay here. <laughs> and pretty much made it clear. It's like, you got to leave. And I'm like, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know. You know, <laughs> this is Grenada. There's Cubans running around in PRA and you know, fighting and stuff. And I don't know where my platoon's at, you know? And, uh, yeah, that, this actually happened. So I'm like, okay, so you're telling me I got to go. Yeah. I said, can I have some ammunition? So he gave me some magazines. I loaded up and I literally walked off that night into the, off into the, uh, into the jungle, walking through Grenada. I'm walking for several hours. I end up downtown. You're walking into the jungle. I'm walking by myself in Grenada. Right. Huh. And so literally by myself. And I end up in uh, Georgetown, the capital. And right before I enter, you know, there's a lot going on there. I'm like, I don't know if I want to walk in there by myself, you know, with, you know, and hey, anybody know where the Lurper Tune's at? <laughs> I said, that's probably a bad <laughs> idea, right? So, so I turn around and I'm walking all night and I'm walking down this dirt road. It's dark, you know, it's spooky. And I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just walking, meandering around the, ju- the jungle, right? And uh, all of a sudden I hear, halt, who goes there? And right away I recognize the voice, a guy named Sean, he was on my team. I go, Sean, Sergeant Comstock, you know, like, hey, hey. we're like hugging it tonight, you know, hey, hey, you know, so that's how I linked up with my platoon. But uh, yeah, it's just, I, when I look back at it, I was like, you can't make that shit up. I'm literally walking around Grenada, don't know where I'm going, looking for my platoon because a couple of officers just kicked me off the freaking airfield because they said I can't stay there. They didn't give me any reason why, I just said I can't stay there. I'm like, okay, give me some ammo, I'm going to leave. <laughs> uh, that's insane. Yeah, but uh yeah, Grenada was interesting, but uh, you know that was my first uh, my first combat deployment. Um, kind of uneventful for me. We were mostly doing uneventful, just yeah, just walking ramble around. through the jungle yeah. and fucking Grenada looking yeah. for life. Yeah, dodging <laughs> Cubans. <laughs> how many? How many just Cubans? How many Cubans took a header yeah. on that walk? No, nine, man. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was actually my first experience. I've I've actually I've been in every campaign, literally every campaign from Grenada, Panama, Somalia, um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, Afghanistan, Yemen, and a few things in between that you know are not uh, not public. But uh, um, the last time I've seen combat was year 2015, 2016, so not that long ago. Um, I've always been a combatant. Um, I've always I've always engaged the enemy at close proximity. That was my job um, to go out and find, fix, fight, and finish the enemy, whether it was with 
with weapon systems, explosives, mortars. I was pretty good with mortars, too. Um, I had a conversation one time with Chris Kyle, the American sniper, and he killed like 150-something people with a sniper rifle. Man, that's, a, that's a pretty good body count, man, for a guy with a gun, you know? <laughs> and I said, but you know what? I said, I probably killed more people than you did with a mortar, you know? Yeah. I, I, you were doing Wednesdays and Tuesdays, man. I was doing groupsies with a freaking, <laughs> you know? And uh, I, had, I, had oh my to, God. I had to run a mortar system, man. Every 4.30 Ooh. in the morning in Afghanistan, man, the, the Taliban on the way to prayer, like, hey, let's go drop some freaking mortars on these guys, right? And they'd launch the mortars, and they'd come in, you know, and get me out of bed at 4.30 in the morning. I got to run out the mortar pit, you know, spin up my guys. We're always, we're always out there already ready to go anyways. And uh, we'd return fire, you know, set up 120s and 80s and, uh, and, and start lobbing back, you know. And it became like almost every two to three days, you know, it was a, uh, we did that on a regular basis. Um, I probably did that for about 18 months, just that part alone. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, so I'm a kind of a weapons of mass destruction guy, you know. Shooting people's okay, but, you know. <laughs> Like and watch them splatter all over the place is like a different thing, you know. Yeah, you you had said earlier you mentioned something about being. Uh, I'm joking, by the way. I, all right, I, I, I'm just gonna let it go for you. But you mentioned something about being a a, a bomb maker, I think, or, or teaching bomb making classes. No, okay, I got a background in explosives. Um, I've I've been working with explosives for probably close to forty years. Um, it's a long time. Yeah, you know. Uh, I'm a breacher, so what that means is I'm, you know, I'm trained to surgically uh, breach, whether it's explosives, ballistic breaching, mechanical breaching, or manual breaching, getting into things, right? Um, so surgical, I know how to use explosives in a surgical, and I also know how to use a bulk explosives, you know, to just do mass destruction if necessary. But uh, so I'm trained in that. I've, I've got a lot of experience working with explosives. Even to this day, uh, my business in Bali, I run a security company. Um, and particularly explosive detector dogs is what I train and deploy Whoa. for like all the Marriott hotels and local venues and things like Wait, that. Wait, you're training dogs? Yeah. So yeah, my okay. company, my security company, we are a canine company. So we train dogs for narcotics, uh, explosives, patrol attack. Um, and that's what we do in Bali. Wow. So actually my wife runs that company now, kind of handed it off to her, but uh, I have a background in that. And so- you know, I understand how explosives work. You know, I understand the detection piece of it. I know how to use it um, surgically. Um, I know how to use it to get into things, get out of things. So, yeah, I've got I've got quite a background in that. Wow. So. Yeah. So that's that's more than I realized. And, and how long have you been training the dogs in Indonesia? Uh, we almost the entire time. I say six years, six and a half years. Now, what goes into that? You know, because we, we take it for granted. We see all these dogs that are, like, so goddamn smart. They come to whatever the war zone is, whatever the horrible situation is. They either yeah. find people or they find where the bombs are. They find where the drugs are. They can hunt people down. Like, what? how do you – how do you even – what's the first thing about even training that into a dog? Is is there only specific breeds you're even going to look at in the first place? And then what, what what's the process? Yeah. Um, so – it's not always breed specific, but some dogs are better than others, others, some breeds. Um, but what we really look for is we look for dogs with what's called high prey drive, right? Um, in other words, a hunting drive, the desire to chase things like a ball, um, birds, animals, whatever. Um, and a dog has got some athletic prowess because, you know, like uh, when I came through the airport through Atlanta today, 
Uh, they had a couple of short-haired uh, German uh, pointers that they were using as uh, what we call vapor uh, vapor dogs. Basically, they were as people were, passengers were lining up to go through immigration. They had you know a row of three or four. They would walk uh, down this uh, channelized hallway, and then the dog walked across the hall and back behind them. Then they sent four more back and forth. So the dog was scenting the air because if you have any odor on you, like explosives, the dog will pick it up in the air and then he'll dial in like a heat-seeking missile on the guy mm. that actually has explosives. So that's called vapor trailing. Um, we do we do some of that, but really what we focus on is uh, searching vehicles for like car bombs and uh, packages, backpacks, stuff like that. We haven't set the thing down. Dog walks up. The dog indicates. Usually he'll sit down if there's something in it. Uh, but it's a process. It takes about three months of training. Right, that's it? Yeah, to get the dog. If he's good, right? If he's got the drive for it. And if you've got a high drive, like a Malinois. I love Malinois because they have very high drive. Um, but they're also, uh, you know, they call them malligators for a reason. You know, they can be a little snippy too. Um, you got to be careful because they're very high defense and high fight drive. So, like, I got a couple dogs that if you even look at me wrong, they'll bite you. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they're very defensive and they're not, they're not, they're not fighting out of fear. They're just bold dogs. That's why the police and the military like them so much, you know, but there's limitations when you're working around hotels because you got people walking in and out. You don't really want a dog around people like that. It might bite them. Um, you know, those are, those mm-hmm. are issues, right? So you gotta, you gotta know what you're looking for, know what you're doing. But here's the thing about canines. Um, governments, all the governments have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars trying to develop machines that were as good as a canine when it comes to olfaction, right? Detect explosives. Nothing has beat a dog yet. Why? Well, <clears throat> first of all, everybody thinks dogs smell like, for example, C4. If you ever smell C4, it smells like marzipan. I haven't. Yeah, but it smells like marzipan. We mean you haven't. What's all that stuff in the room? What's all that stuff in the room? Okay, it's a joke. It's a joke out there. Okay, don't raid. <laughs> no, no I'm going to get swatted in like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we got one. <laughs> no, but it smells like marzipan in my mind. It's, it's got a very distinguished smell to it, right? And so you smell it. And you think, oh, if the dog smells that smell, then anytime he smells it, he'll hit on it. Actually, what the dog is smelling is the broadband frequency. Everything has energy. Everything has frequency. Everything, right? So one explosive will have one broadband frequency. Another explosive will have a little bit of a different frequency. It's a signature. And what happens is the dog sees the world through his nose as we see it through our eyes, mm. right? Because if you think about color, right? Every, every color has a frequency. Every shade, every hue has its own frequency, right? And we see that with our eyes. Our eyes are photoreceptors. They're antennas. They're picking up all the colors and if you think about how many colors we're picking up at a time right and we're processing processing that okay through the visual cortex um man our brains are like you know a quantum computer like 1000 times man oh it's yeah doing a lot of information the dog actually does more through his nose he sees the world through his nose because he picks up frequency you can take a dog that's blind and he'll still find his way around right it's like how does he do that because he's using his nose now he doesn't see the world necessarily like we see it but he can sense the energy as he's moving. Um, and for example, there's been several stories in the years where people have taken a family pet, they've traveled across the country, somewhere along the way, they lost the dog, three months later, back at home and the dog shows up. It's like, how did he find his way back home, right? And so the reason he found his way back home was imagine you're driving down the road and you see landmarks, street signs, you know, you know exactly where you are, you know, and if he did break down, you knew the way to walk back. But the dog is laying in the back seat, sleeping half the time, or just laying down with his head. Now he's not looking out the window, well, how does he know his way? What's happening is you're traveling. He's picking up all the frequency of the odors along the Whoa. way, right? 
And he's remembering all that, just like we're remembering it with our eyesight, street signs. He remembers where he's at. Okay, so he gets lost. All he does is backtrack because his memory, he remembers all the odors and frequencies. I mean, the brain, I mean, it's amazing, right? We, how the brains work, even the animal's brains, and that's how he finds his way back. Otherwise, you know, you know, for example, let's take, um, you know, birds that migrate south during, a, you know, the winter. How the hell do they find their way from Canada to Florida? Every year, same track. Or even the new birds, first time out, you know, flying, and he's finding his way. Because he's picking up energy, the Earth's frequency, magnetic fields, right? And he's, he's got sensor systems. In, we have it in our, in our, in our blood. Um, we are designed to pick up frequency, and that's what the bird is doing. So he's, he's navigating off of frequency, okay? And that's how he's flying. It's not because he's, he's actually got a map and a compass and a GPS going, yeah, we're, we're – right. He's just flying, that's and how people, like even human beings, that's how those who like live off the land in some of these third world countries, they have this stuff because that's what they train their whole life. But we, you know, getting to grow up in yep. the opulence of having a roof over our head and yeah. things like that, the, we lose some of that. Yeah. And that's how animals work. Canines particularly, you know, because and most animals, they use their nose as pigs. There's a lot of things, right? Um, they rely on their noses more than their eyes. And uh, so, like I said, it takes about three months. Sometimes a little less, sometimes a little bit more. It depends on the canine. But uh, it's a very specialized skill. If you know what you're doing, um, it's pretty impressive what the dogs are able to do. And, and here's the thing about a canine. If you, if you pick up an odor with a machine, it's going to process. It can only process one odor at a time. Whereas a canine can pick up three, four different explosives all at one time. You can walk right down the line and identify all four. You don't have to reset him and give him a new swab, you know, clean out his nose and do it again. It's, like it's one time. And also the dog has, in time, has the ability to make uh, Android, uh, Android types of uh, decisions, right? He can start to figure things out, processing in his mind. Um, my dogs know that, you know what? I smell something, but I'm not sure it's right here, but I smell it's around here. So I'll circle around on this side and maybe go back around this side until I find it, right? So they know how to, they start working and start developing a little bit of effective intelligence. Um, but I had, before COVID, I had 45 canines in Bali. I had 65 canine handlers running 24-hour ops, 365. And uh, street value, my dogs were probably close to, Really, about eight hundred fifty to nine, uh, eight hundred fifty to million dollars uh, for forty five cans. Yeah, uh, when they're trained properly, um, they're very expensive. You know. Now, do you have clients that you're constantly training dogs for and sending them back to? No, I don't do that. I just all the dogs I have are trained for my own, my own, uh, our own business. Oh, just for you guys? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Whoa. Just for us. Yeah. Now, how many? Well, I don't even know if you want to say this, but like, how many guys do you have working for you? I had 65 at one point. I had to let them go after COVID. Unfortunately, you know, COVID, again, don't get me COVID started. COVID was bad for war? No, no. These are, this is Bali, Indonesia, security. I know. Yeah. It, but, but like you guys are being sent to war zones and shit sometimes. Like that's that didn't stop because of COVID, no? Right. Exactly right. But the whole world shut down because of COVID and all the properties that were had our canines were like, hey, uh, we got to shut down. So you take your dogs off the property. Like, um, and then now I can't pay my handlers, right? It's like, oh, I you know, understand. I understand. And I got to let them go. I, I understand. No. And then yes. the canines, I actually think some of my canines. I was misappropriating something else you said. Yeah, I, I think some of my canines actually died from COVID. It had some really weird symptoms. And by the way, COVID's been around for at least 20,000 years. I've been inoculating. 20,000 years? Yeah. I've actually been inoculating my dogs for COVID since 19... Um, mm, 85? For COVID-19 or for, COVID? For COVID. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. COVID-19 yes, is just yes, a variant yes, of it, right? Yes, that's right. But that's COVID's right. been around for a long time. Yes. And right. uh, and so I think some of my dogs actually got COVID because 
in Indonesia, I don't believe the vaccines have COVID uh, 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 vaccine. There's what's called a seven-way and an eight-way. It's a combination of vaccines, right? But I don't believe in Indonesia we had the vaccine for COVID in the, uh, in the seven or eight ways that we were using. So I had some really weird symptoms, some of my canines. I actually lost, um, I probably lost 30 dogs. Thirty, yeah, at least for either either disease and or just sedentary. These dogs aren't working no more. They're being housed because we can't travel, we can't yeah. move, we can't do anything. I mean, literally, there was a point where you couldn't drive down the road without somebody, a police officer or a soldier, stopping. You go, "Where's your pass at?" Like Nazi Germany stuff. Like, you know, what are you doing out here? Where's your pass at? You know, I'm going to grocery store, sir. <laughs> yeah, you know? man. crazy, man. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. And like even here, it's amazing how fast that happened. Yeah. You know, like one day shit was normal. The next day people were like, oh, yeah, we're just locked inside. No problem. Like, don't go to the grocery store. You might die. Yeah. It's, am- it's just like snapping a finger. You know, it, you know, in Indonesia, I, I go back to Indonesia because that's where I kind of relate to it. In Indonesia, about 40 5% of the population lives off of day wages. Whatever they can sell that day in terms of food or parking a car is what they're eating on, right? They're, yeah. they're you know, a couple of cents here, park a car, yeah. Yeah. sell a muffin, whatever, right? That's what they're going to feed their family on. Well, it got to a point where they weren't allowed to be out selling food. They weren't allowed to do anything. They had to hunker down. It's like, how are they going to make money? And people were literally, I mean, I've seen videos of entire families hanging themselves from the rafters because mm. they would rather hang than starve to death because they weren't allowed to work. Think about that for a minute. For a virus with a 99% survival rate, I did the math on it. Um, you, know, you did. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I've done the math. It's, I, I take the CDC <laughs> statistics on all that, and you do, you've calculated that with the population, it's like, damn, yeah. you know? And now it's, now it's all coming out, like, yeah, okay. Yeah, it was, yeah. One of, it was one of those things where, I mean, we knew it, I was around here when it was happening, but... You know, the strike zone that hit hard in America was New York and North Jersey and stuff. Yeah. And none of us were – none of the average people like me or probably even you were like virologists back then that understood how viruses work. But viruses start. They kill a lot of people and as they're killing a lot of people, they're like, oh, shit, we don't want to kill the host. So it, it slows down. It has a curve over time. And I think that here – you know, they just dragged it on for so fucking long, you know, to such an archaic level that, you know, putting that rabbit back in the hat is tough. I mean, I can see it at the beginning, but yeah, it was insane how far the measure. I don't know here. if Joe told you uh, on the show, but Joe and four other guys. Ted. Yeah, Joe yeah. Ted. They they actually scheduled um, an appointment to go down and get tested for COVID, right? Get tested for COVID. Then they did, and they canceled. A week later, they all got letters saying they were positive for COVID. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for a minute, right? How was that? Why was he testing? Why was he testing for COVID? Exactly. He wanted to see if he had COVID. And so he- Oh, he, just randomly. Yeah. Wanted, oh. Right? And so he, he scheduled appointments, canceled it for whatever reason or another, and then they got letters saying, hey, by the way, you're positive for COVID. <laughs> so, that's nuts. Yeah. That's the kind of crap that's going on, you know? Um, a lot of people made a lot of money, and a lot of people yes. were- Their livelihood- Mine was- my my business was wrecked badly because of this, you know. And, yeah, I was th- when I, when we were talking. I'm sorry, when we were talking five minutes ago, I was thinking off the canine. I was thinking about the other stuff, not the canines. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. This is, this is wild. Yeah, that. yeah. Um, and we've you know <clears throat> we've never really recovered, although we're recovering. We're actually making more money now than we did pre-COVID um, with less clients, which is kind of weird how that worked out. But uh, uh, we definitely we definitely took a beating. And the worst part was I had. You know, of the 65 handlers I had, I had to let 55 go. I just couldn't support them anymore. I just, yeah. you know, we lost, man, we lost our ass, you know. Um, 
And I remember, you know, when I felt bad because my guys, my employees are like family. You know, we treat, we treat, treat them very fairly and very well, you know, and they are part of family. You know, we know their families and, you know, and, and I, the, the approach that I take to, you know, running a business is, you know, treat my employees with respect. In fact, the first thing I told my wife, I said, you know what, first two things, these are imperatives. I said, every man gets his check, his full paycheck, every time, on time, no excuse ever, right? He gets paid because there's a tendency not to do that over there, right? And so, so two, if a guy makes a mistake, we don't fire him the first time, we counsel him. If he makes a second mistake, hey, we know what, we'll penalize you a little bit of money. Don't do that again. And if he makes it a third time, then we cut his head off. I said, you know, but we, we try to be fair about it. Those are my two rules. And and they appreciated that. And I knew their families, and, and I knew they were depending on this paycheck to feed their families. And by the way, in Indonesia, the average family makes about $260 a month. Think about that for a minute. $260 now, how far a does month. that go there, though? It goes pretty far because they live a very uh, minimalist life, you know. Small but also home. shit's like very inexpensive there no it's it's expensive but he's been there and he knows you still you know yeah, he's been there he's th poor yeah they're yeah <laughs> but they're not eating steaks I, I can tell you that you know okay. they're not eating a lot of meat they're eating a lot of rice a lot of vegetables a lot of fruit and a lot of water right and uh that's good and uh yeah it's, it's actually good but they don't you know they don't get the the privileges we do like travel and go do this right, you know there's right. they don't have a lot of expendable money you know and uh so you know and that was important to me too to make sure they're paid well you know, for their standards anyways, and try to keep them handy. But when that happened, I actually had one guy, um, he came back to us and he told us that his daughter had died, his little, like two-year-old daughter. And oh. I, what happened? Oh yeah, she was really sick, you know, and we didn't have the money for the bills. Oh. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, you should have called me. I'd have given you the money. I'd have, take, I'd have paid for it, you know, and I wouldn't charge, I'd have given it to you. You got, you know, family, but you know, that's how they are, man. It's like, you know, kids were dying, you know, and, and, Guys didn't have the money to take care of their children, their families oh. anymore, you know. And I, I was so angry, man. Um, you know, it's like, you know, what, what a, what a scam, man. It'd be, and people, you know, and the other thing too, but going back to the canines, you know, canines can pick up viruses. Canines can actually sense and detect a virus. They can detect cancer. They can detect uh, um, seizures before they come on. It's amazing what a canine can detect. And I had trained dogs, and I was working with a group that we've trained dogs to pick up. Uh, COVID viruses could actually sense if a person had a virus before they showed symptoms. Mm. Nobody wanted to talk about that. Nobody wanted to do that. You know why? They were making all the money off the PCR tests and send them to yeah. the hospital. Nobody wanted to talk about, let's mitigate this. We put canines at the airports when you come through like an explosive detector dog, you know, and, and we signal out people that might be sick because it was a racket. People made a lot of money over people, it. Yeah, you COVID know? made some people, man. Made like, them very like rich. Like the business of Made them very rich. Yeah. And it killed a lot of businesses, you know? It yes. killed a lot of families, killed a lot yep. of people, you know, inadvertently. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, man, it's just one of those things that uh, just aggravating as hell. You know the lies are being perpetrated um, at our at our expense. You know the fear mongering. Um, I was at the G20 summit last year, which happened to be in Bali, right? So I got contracted to come and do the security for it. For so, like an individual leader, or all of G20, all the all of them. Yeah, G20, the whole Just G20, like the whole thing. Wow. Yeah, the whole G20 was somewhere right there where I live, right? So I got contracted to come in and provide canines for security. So I also got to listen to some of the bullshit that, that <laughs> they were they were, we were spewing on the on the podium. Right, and, and here's I just a, needed. I need an image of you in the corner with the dog, like that's some bullshit. Oh, I want to say it so bad, but man, they, shut the fuck up, blood. These people were eating this shit up. I'm like, are you kidding me? Here's five things. Here's the five takeaways from the G20 summit that I got. Five things. Oh, One, no. yeah, we have a water shortage. 
I go, that's bullshit. I just swam to this fucking convention this morning because it rained so hard in Bali. All right. There's water all around the planet. We got saline, desalination plants where there's no water shortage. Okay. But they're saying, oh, there's a water shortage. There's a food shortage. I go, bullshit. There's no food shortage either. There's no food shortage. Three, there's an energy shortage. Yeah. Guess what? That's a, that's a self-inflicted gunshot wound. There's, we have plenty of energy if we just, you know, turn on the spigots, you know. Um, four, there's going to be another pandemic, but this one's going to be bad. And number five was, oh, yeah, the Russians are bad. They're going to kill us all. Like, what a bunch of shit. When was this summit? This was Which, last year, last November. Last November. A year ago. A yeah. year ago. Um, just scary shit, you know. When you when you hear people with power and influence up there, and they're literally brainwashed, and everybody look at you know look at the World Economic Forum, that freaking shit show, you know. That and, guy's funny, you know. But but these people, these people are manipulators, man, and uh, and everybody else is not paying attention, you know. They're, I hate when people say, "Well, I you know, I don't watch the news anymore." It's like you should watch the news because they don't want you to watch the news because they don't want you to watch what they're doing to well, you. Well, the news, you know? but the news is also all slanted. None of it's real. Right. And that's why you should watch it because you need to watch the shit show and then do your own critical thinking. Right? Yeah, but like people, that's the problem though. People will watch something like that passively when they do or they'll see the clips on social media. And you right. got to remember everyone, you know, they got their family and they got their job, they got their life. Yeah, we want to see people that make decisions for themselves and don't just listen to what's said. But if they're already listening passively, I'm thinking of like, smart people out there too who it's just kind of passive i see it happen all the time where people are and, and I'll, i'm guilty of it sometimes too because i'll hear someone be like oh yeah that thing you know what i mean like there's so much going on it's like not everyone is the president not everyone's the secretary of state right you know they're all just normal people i hear you but i think that's kind of built into the system that some of the people the powers that be take advantage of that because they know people have priorities that the news isn't paying their bills that's right you know right it's the human condition man um <laughs> there's the leaders and then there's those that follow unfortunately uh, most people are followers you know and yeah. they trust everybody else you know to to give them information and they expect it to be truthful when it's not you know sadly um it's crazy times we're living in very crazy times yeah for sure uh, but you so you we had said this a little bit ago but you retired from the military in 01, six weeks before 9-11, when you did that, like the second you retired, was your plan to go into contracting? Or, no. Okay. No. So then plane hits the buildings. Right. Is, did that change for you? Well, what happened was um, I wanted to start. So before I got out of the military, I'm like, okay, I'm going to retire. What am I going to do when I get out? Okay. What am I good at? Mm, pulling triggers. And there's not a lot of need for that in the civilian world. And I'm thinking, well, what am I good at? What could I do? And I thought, oh, you know what? I could start a security company, even though security wasn't making a lot of money back then either. You know, an average security manager at a big bank was making maybe $80,000 a year. And that was top money. You know? But I said, well, you know, something's better than nothing. I want to start my own business. I want to be self-employed. Um, so I started a security company and had a partner. We started campaigning in the uh, uh, in the nuclear security sector, private sector. Um, and then... You know, Anyways, made ourselves known, nothing was happening. And then 9-11 happened, and bam, the doors opened wide open for us. And before you know it, we were making shitloads of money in the nuclear security sector doing, basically hardening all the nuclear power plants in the United States. Whoa. Everything. I mean, all aspects of security, man. We, Yeah, we did really well. In fact, a lot of the uh, uh, 
security, security apparatus uh, constructs that you see in that sector now um, was derived from my company. Um, so much so that in 2004, G4S came along and said, hey, we want to buy your company, you know. Um, and I was like happy to do that because I didn't think this was going to live very long, right? But man, I could have never been more wrong. Here we are, right? Security is still a big deal. And oh, the, yeah. the threat's still evolving, you know. But I, I was smart enough to start a second company right away, sold it later on, 2011. So my goal was not to get into contracting. My job, my goal was just to run a business and do security consulting. And then I got recruited by, you know, the, the government at the same time. Now, is this ground branch? It's whatever you want to call it. And, okay. uh, and so anyways, I ended up uh, doing that almost nine and a half years. And uh, I wasn't supposed to, I was supposed to do it for about a year. That was my plan, check, check the block. Before you know it, nine and a half years went by and I'm like, damn, you know? And then my, I mentioned that ambush earlier, the last ambush, the final ambush. I decided it's time to get out and do something different. So that's what brought me Wait, back which to- Which ambush was that? Number five. It was, uh, I got ambushed one night. Basically we got boxed in on this, it was one road down uh, the Kunar, Kunar River on both sides. Where? Here. Kunar? Yeah, where? Afghanistan. Okay. So on both sides. Did, you, you, didn't, you didn't talk about this on camera? I thought I did. No. I no. started to, maybe. I, yeah, got, yeah. I went on a tangent. All right, all right. I, I got always do. Tell, tell the story. <laughs> I need yeah. more coffee. Um, no. You want some more? No, I'm good. Okay. I'm actually getting I going to say, I think you're about to fucking blow through that window if I give you more coffee. <laughs> no. I drank a gallon of it already. I had to, man. I haven't had no sleep since Sunday. <laughs> Been traveling 32 hours on one flight from... Man, from Indonesia to Manila to anyway. God here. damn. I well, drove, you're here. drove five hours last yes. night. You know, so. And thank you for doing that. That's by all right. The way. There's uh, a whole slip up with, with the yeah, uh, no with the deal. airport and everything. I appreciate you. But that ambush, uh, the one I'm referring to, um, what happened was we were on a road, a river road, small dirt road. We drove into an area that's about uh seven kilometers that the Taliban owned. It was their territory. Who's we? Had, we? My group that my that we were traveling with, right? Got small small element, and um, there were mountains on both sides. Uh, we were we were basically on the road running along the river. There was no, you can't make a left or right turn. You got to go north or south down this road, and we had to stop. And in very short order, we heard the Taliban on the radio. They had set up ambushes on both of ends of our uh, small convoy, and they were getting ready to hit us. And uh, and then I realized, oh, shit, the only way we're getting out of this is we got to run the gauntlet now. And we know they're going to hit us. We know they're going to blow us. They set up IEDs. We knew where they were. Um, and so we made the decision. We're going to turn around, run north again, run the ambush, hopefully fight through it, and then get back to our, to our base camp. And I remember when we turned around that night, um, there was a total of – we had like 23 vehicles. Um, and we're spread out about 50 meters each. So think about that for a minute. You know, we're – over a kilometer long convoy, you know, and on that road, you can only travel maybe five miles an hour max speed. It's just a really bad dirt road. So we turned around and uh, we already made contact once. We already had casualties. Guys got shot up. So we're already dealing with that. Got the vehicles turned around and we had called in a uh, H6 attack, uh, Apache attack helicopter. He actually had gone back and he had reloaded, refueled, got more ammunition, came back. And we decided, okay, we're going to let him run out in front of us, strafe the road. Um, and then once he strafes the road, we're going to start driving. As we're listening to the Taliban on the radio, because we had what's called an ICOM radio. That's what the Taliban used. So it's pretty much an open channel. And we had a couple and our interpreters were listening to it and they were telling us what the guys were doing. And they had actually 
just they had changed their tactics over the years. They used to hit us um, from a distance, long range ambushes, and now what they were doing is getting right up on the road, right, and then actually getting between the vehicles. So now we're in a crossfire, and they also knew that you know the helicopters, close air support, can't engage them either. Otherwise, they would engage our own our, our vehicles, right? So they got a little smarter as time went on, and so we knew they were near the edge of the roads. Um, and we knew what they were going to do. In fact, we heard them say, hey, we're going to hit this vehicle, this vehicle, and they got this weapon system, this weapon system, we're going to grab that, grab that, grab this. And by the way, this goes all the way back to the Mujahideen and the Russians. They used to mm-hmm. do that as well. Um, they would usually hit the last vehicle in a Russian convoy and just clean it out, you know, because they knew the Russians were going to turn around and come back and help these guys. They are going to keep on booking. Um, so we knew what they were going to do. And we're sitting there, and the helicopters came in, started strafing the road. And then uh, the first vehicle left. I remember watching through my night vision goggles. All the guns opened up, and the instructions were, as I gave them, I said, shoot at everything and anything a Taliban could hide behind. Open every gun system on your truck and let them shoot, right? We had guns placed in every direction. So the first vehicle takes off at a blazing, like, five miles an hour, shooting. And then the second one, and then the third one. It's like March of the Penguins, you know? And I'm, I'm like the 15th truck back, and I got all the antennas on mine. It says, command vehicle, blow this one up, right? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm actually driving my command vehicle, and I got, you know, um, my Afghan interpreters with me. And I'm telling the same thing. I go, dude, as soon as I start driving, I said, shoot anything where a bad guy can hide behind it. You know, I said, don't relent until we get out of this thing. So as I'm sitting there, I'm watching the vehicles go one by one. The firefight starts. I got time to watch the show and think about it before it's time for me to start driving my vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I thought, you know what? I've, never, I've been in a lot of ambushes, but I've never actually had to deliberately drive into an ambush to get out of it. But I have no choice this time. And then I started thinking, man, what if I don't make it out of this one? You know, I am driving the one with the antennas. And so I thought about my family and I took the moment. I said, okay, I want to visualize every one of my children's face, everybody's face, my wife, my kids, one by one, see their face for the last time, maybe their face, their face, their face, their face, their face. And then what I want to do is get that all out of my mind. So I'm no longer distracted by that. Mm. Right. And knowing that would be maybe the last time I ever think about them or see them, you know, now I need to do is be laser focused on how much time do you take to do that a couple seconds it was just, it. I just closed my eyes and thought about it and i saw their faces you know taking a deep breath you know and uh got it got over that piece of it and, and then started moving out and i remember i broke the front the fright uh the strut on the front right side of my truck right so now i got the wheel rubbing on the side of the, the wheel well and it catches on fire so I'm the only truck with his wheels on fire, <laughs> doing five miles down the road, going shoot me, shoot the me. The wheels are on fire. Yeah, because the stretch, but because the roads were, roads were so uh. bad, you know. And uh, but I, I lived through it, got through the other side, and uh, we had maybe seven trucks get shot up, a couple more casualties, but uh, we got all the way out on the other side. Like I said, they own about seven kilometers of this dirt road, and I remember we're listening to the radio, and the commander's yelling at. Uh, the guy that was had the clacker for the IEDs because there was a there was a S turn and he had set the IEDs up in the S turn right in the apex there when we knew we had to kind of slow down to come around that mm. corner and uh, and he never fired the IED and the commander's like yelling why did you blow up the IED he goes I couldn't sir because they were shooting so many bullets at me I couldn't get my head up <laughs> I go well I guess the plan worked you know and so we didn't we didn't get IED'd um, we did take some shots and stuff like that some casualties but. Uh, you know, we got out of it. But after I got out of that, I thought, that's it. That's it. I made it. I'm done. That's that's it. It's all over. You know? That was it for that. That was it for it, for that <laughs> that war. I was out of there. Right, you know? right, right. And I uh, right. came back and 
started doing all the Hollywood stuff and the corporate stuff and, you know, and Hong Kong stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Every story I hear about the Middle East during the global war on terror, it just, it, it almost doesn't feel real because it wasn't long ago. I mean, it just ended like a year and a half ago or whatever it was. And, yeah. you know, the, 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 it's it's like it's halfway around the world, but you guys saw it. You saw exactly what it was. You saw life in danger at all times, not just your own, but you know the people who live there and by their own people. And in many cases, with with a place like Afghanistan. But when you we we touched on it a little bit already. But when you saw the imagery that looked like leaving Saigon, basically like a redux yeah. of that in twenty twenty August twenty twenty one with Afghanistan falling, was there. Were you one of those guys who was like, fuck, we got to go there. We got to go find the interpreters that, that you know, helped me over those years or whatever. Oh, like what, what was going through your head? Yeah. So, all right. <laughs> so while I was operating over there, I operate, operated under a pseudonym, right? I never used my real name. There's a reason for that, obviously, you know. Um, of course. CIA. Well, you know, <laughs> now, you know, I'm, everybody knows. But dude, I walk down the street all around the world and people go, hey, are you the American badass? And the first thing I go, uh, depends. <laughs> Are you a good guy or a bad guy? You know, I mean, I, I get that a lot. You know, obviously, I can't escape the must, and I don't care. I don't try to eat. I'm not trying to. Yeah, that mustache. I can see that. Fucking well, thing I don't. I don't. Away. Everybody thinks I'm Stone Cold Steve Austin, so I take a lot of pictures <laughs> pretending to be him. Like, yeah, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it's uh, the uh, what's the name of the Hulk, Hulk Hogan, um, Hulk Hogan. And then sometimes also, um, what's it, Vin Diesel, right? Not so much. My son actually- You get Vin Diesel? Uh, actually, my son gets Vin Diesel. He looks just like Vin Diesel. I was going to say, I'm yeah. calling bullshit on that one. Yeah, but I, no, I have gotten Vin Diesel. I'm like, you know- Those people guy. are fucking blind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, but to your point, you know, when that happened, when Kabul fell, I don't know how a lot of my soldiers, because they never knew me by my full name. Never. And they never had, but they found me. They found me on social media, Facebook, wow. and, and they called me commander because for all intents and purposes, I was a commander. And it was like, commander, can you help me? Can you save me and my family? Can you come again? And I tried. Actually, I had a couple guys and their families lined up to go out on a couple lifts. One was an Australian bird, um, and uh, both of them fell through. I actually, I actually wrote them letters to get them passage through the gates, you know, so they could show, hey, look, you know, this guy, blah, 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 you know, he's vouching for me. I tried everything I could to get these guys out and um, to no avail. Um, it was just very hard to get them out. And and there was, they're, even to this day, they're still texting me. Uh, I got a guy three days ago just text me, Commander, Commander, how are you? You know, and that's how it starts. And I know what they want. Can you get me? Can you help me? Um, actually, part of my unit um, was killed um, in a raging firefight protecting our base and uh, it was on the news, and they all went down. They went down blazing, man, to to the man. So half my unit's gone, dead, killed. Oh. Uh, yeah, trying to, yeah, to trying to defend that. the camp, you know, the base. Um, and it did make the news. I know who they are. I know the camp. Some people know who it is, but uh, those guys are gone. And there was only forty two guys in my platoon, and um, and so. I told my guys, I said, man, you got, you're going to have to run for the hills, but there's nowhere to go. He said, they, as soon as they find out who you are and who you were working for, you're a dead man. In fact, there had one guy text me hiding with his family, literally texting me in hiding. He said, they're outside right now looking for me. What can I do? 
what are you? I don't know what to even tell you at that point. You know, I'm, you're Johnny on the spot. But uh, mm-hmm. I just felt so bad because they were pleading with me to help them. You know, I'm the guy that was always there for them, leading them. You know, leading in the combat, making decisions. You know, taking care of their welfare. You know, and I was I was the daddy man. You know, and suddenly daddy can't help them. You know, and I and it was, and it really made a lot of guys mad. You know, my guys were like, you know, now you just kick us to the curb. You know, the chips are down. You're just going to leave us behind. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of guys I'm sure a lot of them are dead, you know, since then. Um, they can't get out. The roads are blocked. They're contained. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's pretty irritating, man, when I think about that. These are guys, let me tell you how loyal these, these Afghans were. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I remember I had the same 42 dudes. They were some of the best Afghans in over there. And we would go do ops all the time. In fact, we had a two-man rule in Afghanistan. A two-man rule stated that, you know, as an American, you never go out without another American. You always at least two Americans, no matter what you do, right? But I broke the rule all the time. I usually went out by myself with my guys. That's how much I trust them. In fact, they would stand there and look at me and go, uh, Mr. Dale, don't you worry. He goes, we'll form a wall around you. We will not let anything happen to you. And I knew they wouldn't. I mean, these guys would freaking get it on, man. And, uh, and, I, and I won their hearts and minds because I'm the guy that, you know, if something didn't go right, you know, hey, take the day off. Here's a bonus, you know. Man, we had tons of money for these guys, you know. And I, I made sure I took care of them, kept them happy. And every time I uh, rotated out for vacation before I come back, every time I left, um, I'm the only guy that I can remember where they would actually have a formation and they would lay out. All these things like war rugs, um, uh, women's dre- Af- traditional women's Afghan dresses, and you know all kinds of you know, cheesy jewelry and stuff. You know all a- Afghan stuff for me. And they'd bring me out front and center, and they want to you know thank me for you know mentor them and you know and have these gifts. The war rugs were really cool. Um, I still have those, you know, and, and they're they're very famous. So it's a, it's a rug. It's got tanks on it and missiles, and it's like handmade, you know, and hand drawn. They're, they're kind of cool, and uh, and so. The guys actually really loved me and took care of me. And I knew that I would never have to worry about these guys turning on me. I trained them. I fed them. I paid them, you know. I was just – because that's what you do. You you got to be good to your soldiers, man. You got to treat them like your brothers, not like, you know, cannon fodder. And, uh, and when this happened, you know – and they're asking for my help, and I'm totally helpless. I can't do anything. I've tried. I just—I almost thought I had some on an airplane, and that fell through. You know, they couldn't even get through the gates with the mm. documents. Nothing, man. Um, they were just left out hanging, you know, high and dry. And you know, I, I think back to Somalia. You know, so, so in Mogadishu, remember, right? The big firefight, October third, October fourth, and I remember on ninety-two. Yeah, 93. yep, ninety-two, and I remember. Um, the next morning, maybe October 6th or 7th, something like that. I can't remember the exact day now. Uh, Colonel Garrison at the time, well, General Garrison in the, in the movie Black Hawk Down, he was the Delta Force commander, Colonel Garrison. Um, very good guy, very good officer, uh, very well liked. And he, and he had a formation very early in the morning, like as soon as the sun came up in front of the hangars, he got all lined up, you know. And, um, and I remember he said, I still remember what he said. He goes, gentlemen, he goes, war is nothing more than an extension of politics. And he goes, he goes, as of today, we are going to redeploy and go back to U.S. Operations are over. And we're all standing there just dumbfounded going, wait a minute. We're still missing men. 
we're still mm. missing people, right? Bodies, you know, these- Someone's going to lose an election in November, though. You know, and this, remember, it's Bill Clinton in time in office, and we're all kind of looking at you going, wait a minute, as a soldier, you're required to complete the mission, right? That's expected. If you have a mission, your job is to complete the mission. Mission and then men, okay? That's the, the, the order. And we have a mission. Our mission was to come there and basically kill or capture Adid, right? The warlord. That mission wasn't complete. Moreover, we've already lost bodies and we can't find them, right? And there's people out there need our help, Americans. And so what we expect as soldiers is that our commanders, including the commander chief, the president, Clinton, to have the same resolve to continue the mission and see it to its end. And he didn't. <clears throat> he said, no, we're going to basically, we got punched in the nose, we're going to go home. And I, well, all these men are dead. For what and why? So you can just quit and go home? You know, we want to continue to, to, to campaign, at least get our bodies back, you know? And this guy just wanted, he's done. It made no sense, right? And, I, and it's one of the few times where I really looked at, started looking at combat and war differently. I started looking at the politics of it all. And sometimes I started questioning, I was like, you know, what is this all about, man? What, what do we do? Who am I? Why am I doing this then? Mm. You know, and then when Kabul happened, I go, there it is again. You know, we, we wasted so many lives, you know, wasted so many lives to what end? Nothing. 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 Right? So those are two occasions in my military career. You know, I'm 60 years old and I've been in the military since I was 18, you know, or working for the government in, in this capacity. And those are two incidents that really stand out. And I'm like, wow, you know, the U.S. government had no problem wasting lives, good men, and putting their families and their children out there, you know, out their fathers. And, uh, and they didn't have the balls to complete the mission. The, the same thing they expect from us. If I didn't complete the mission, you know, I get hung out to dry. You know, I'm a shitbird for not doing my job. But they don't do their job, you know, and their excuse is what? What, what was the excuse? There's no excuse. You think you're well, sick. Well, guys in offices in D.C., yeah. they can make decisions from there. Yeah, you know? exactly, right? And so, you know, and... and Man, that's one of those things in my, you know, that really, really pisses me off when I think about it is I think about the good men like Gary, for example, Gary Gordon, you know, that are gone for what? You know, Mark, a friend of mine. Who, was, Ga who was Gary? Gary Gordon, Congressional Medal of Honor winner in Mogadishu. Oh, right. right? Yeah. Um, and others. I mean, they're dead now. You know, I mentioned the SEAL earlier who died a year after, you know, his he adopted a little baby girl, yeah. you know. It's like, okay, for what? Why did all that happen, you know? Um yeah, sadly, it is what it is. Um, you know, war, you know, war is a racket, and um, you know when people. How do you stop that? You don't stop it. You know why? I'll quote uh, Gustav Le Bon. He said, "Man is a warring ape. We've been since the dawn of time, since the dawn of man. We've had over twelve thousand wars. You know, this is on our nature. War is our nature. This is what we do. You know, why? We're driven by three things." We're driven by three things in my in my estimation: power, mm -hmm. money, mm -hmm. and pussy. At the end of the day, <laughs> procreation. Those are the yeah. three things that drive us, right? Triple and we fees. And we fight for that shit, right? And we kill for that stuff. It's it's really what it comes down to. And as long as as long as there's power, there's money, and there's pussy, there's going to be conflict. Yes. You know, and uh, it's never going to end. And so there's no utopia. Get over it. Um, so now what we've got to do is if we can first of all. We don't have to accept it, but just know this is a reality that, you know, combat and war is, is what it is. 
prepare for it, but also know that you know life's not fair. And uh, if you can at least come to terms with that, your life will be a little bit easier. You know, everybody wants to live in utopia, you know, kumbaya. It's not going to happen. It never happens, okay? Uh, let's be realistic about it. So we're not going to stop it. We're not going to change it. The, you know, the best we can do is we've got we've to rein in the decision makers, the politicians. Those are the guys that are doing it. You know, you and I aren't going out and starting fights. We're but, not going out and starting but wars. in order to rein them in, we have to rein in the people who really make the decisions on them, which is the people who pay them. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you do that? Because again, and, and I'm not I'm not calling you out here or anything. Yeah. We need guys like you in the world. Yeah. But, you know, you're – when you take contracts now, like you're taking contracts from some of these companies or mm-hmm. the governments who are backed by those companies and yeah. stuff. So how do you – if if you know you're needed in so many of these situations, which I'll agree you are, where does the line stop to where you get to the point where guys aren't needed? And how do you determine that line? Yeah. So this is, for me personally, this is why I pick and choose what I do. This is why you won't find me in Ukraine. I ain't going to have, I got nothing to do with that. You're not going to find me in Israel. I got nothing to do with that. It doesn't affect my life. doesn't affect the American way of life. Um, you know, I pick and choose my fights. Uh, the st- other stuff I've done, you know, if I'm going to kill terrorists, I, I'm okay with that because they're never going to abate. And all I can do is become a speed bump for them, you know. So I pick and choose what I do. Um, yes, I want to get paid. You know, I don't do it because the money's good. I make money doing it. Look, I got a security company already. Right. I don't, I don't need to go out and do this kind of work. I never did need to do this kind of work. But what makes you want to do it? Like when you get a job where you got to go into a dangerous place, because you said you haven't been in a war zone since 2015, but we talked about some other jobs off camera, which you may get into that you do. You, I mean, you're going into dangerous places for dangerous people sometimes too. to help people, to actually help people. That's mm-hmm. the thing. Actually, everything I do is to help people. Um, and I get paid to help them, right? I mean, I've got, you know, I, I take a lot of risk. I mean, I've done in the last four weeks, I've done at least four different projects and different countries um, that are not necessarily friendly countries, in fact, communist countries. And I've had to help people that were in trouble. Um, they weren't criminals. They were just in trouble and to, through no fault of their own. And I show up and I help them and I get them out. Um, I don't go out and save criminals. I don't go out and save, you know, bad guys. I don't, I, that's not what I do. Um, my job is to help those that can't help themselves. Mm. They find themselves in a, in a place where they're stuck. Um, I have one guy that... <clears throat> I won't go. I, I won't mention the country because I may need to go back in there. But uh, yeah, I have to be very careful how I couch this stuff. But uh, I had one guy call me. Goes, hey man. He goes, I've literally been, I've been banned. I've been locked in this country for five years. Um, they did put a travel ban on me. And I said, why? What happened? He goes, well, um, he he had a girlfriend there. Um, That's how it starts. She, yep. He had a baby. She didn't want to marry him. They had. He, they got joint custody of the kids. She wouldn't let him see the kids. So he had to go through a um, um, an enforcement agency there. By the way, this is a communist country. <clears throat> and um, he's got to pay the enforcement agency to make the arrangements so he can see his kid. He paid them. They didn't make the arrangements. He got mad. Came back and tried it again. He goes, this time I'll pay you after you make the arrangements. And they're like, no, you'll pay us first. He goes, no, I'll pay you after. They go, oh, yeah, watch this. And they literally put a travel ban on him, called immigration, and locked him down. He wasn't a criminal, didn't do anything wrong. So he's not allowed to work, and he can't leave the country. He can't do anything. Oof. So and look, this happens a lot of different places. Yeah. Okay, a lot. Southeast Asia, Asia, Middle East. I've done this before, <clears throat> um, and it sucks. And, and you know, again, we talk about, you know, our country and, 
You know, we need to think about how bad other people have in the world. Imagine yes. being locked in. I call it a velvet cage. You can't get out, you know? And uh, he's like, I've been here long enough, man. He goes, I want to get out. He goes, I want to bring my son out who's five, you know? And I said, well, that's going to be different. I said, I can get you out. I'm not sure about the kid yet. How yeah. would you go about getting out a guy like that? Like what's... It's pretty simple. What are you looking for? It's pretty simple. You know, it's, it's easy. It, you know, it, look, you're not going through the airport. You're not going through immigration. Um, that's a, that's never going to happen. Um, you're just going to literally have to go across the borders, you know, and you got to, that's the, that's the tricky part. How do you get them across the borders, you know, and take them out to a friendly country and then work them out of there. So <clears throat> I do that. That's what I do. Um, yeah, what goes in? So. Let's make up a couple countries here because you don't want to use that example. Yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Let's say you got a guy in – trying to think of my geography here. Let's say you have a guy in Syria and he can't get out. Yeah. And you need to get him into – what's what's to the east of – Iraq's to the uh, south. What's the east of Syria? What touches Syria? Is that Iran? Uh, no, no. Um, east of Syria, you have Iraq and you have uh, Turkey. You have, Turkey. Okay. Yeah. So you want to get someone out. That's perfect. You want to get someone out of Syria into Turkey, which we have some issues with too, but you know it's a little better. How how are you determining where on the border to take them? Okay, I'll show and, you. and what to do? Yeah, I'll tell you how it works. Uh, how I do it is one, I start with uh, an intel analysis. So I look at the map studies and I look for potential crossover points. I look at border checkpoints. Um, I look at uh, things like trafficability, you know, population densities, um, a lot of things you have to consider, right? What you're looking for is a hole in the net in the fence that you mm. go through undetected, right? And so that requires not just a map reconnaissance. You start with a map reconnaissance, and then you need to do a ground reconnaissance. You need to go put eyes on and confirm, yeah, that's this is doable, Um it starts with that, and then it goes to developing a plan, right, which the, the plan can be pretty detailed in that, you know, you got to have a cover story, cover for action, cover for status. Why are you here and what are you doing? Oh, I just came out here driving around the desert just to hang out, you know, or, you know, or I'm in the – I'm in the um, – What's the word I'm looking for? I'm in a public park in the jungle just looking at the monkeys. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that actually happened to me. That actually happened one time. We were actually being tracked – uh, we had a tracker on our on our car to know it, and uh, we're we're going up north to the border. And uh, luckily, there's there is a park there, and uh, it's all jungle. And we get the, my the guy that I have with me is getting a text message. He goes, "Hey, are you guys going to the border?" Oh shit! I didn't know that, right? So yeah, <laughs> and find out, oh god, we got a tracker on us, you know. So now we got to figure out, okay, how do we? What's the what's the plan for that? So. You do we did I do what's called false insertion. So I drive down different roads in different directions, do loop de loops, turn around, park the car for a while, go to a restaurant, you know, and oh no, we're gonna go up here and meet some chicks, you know, and uh whatever, right? So everything is so if anybody is tracking you, which they are, like on a GPS and a map, then you know, it's like these guys are idiots, they're all over the place, you know. What are they doing? Just driving around randomly, you know, but somewhere in that process the you drop off your, your uh customer and uh, and you point him in the right direction, or you take him across, you walk him across, you know, walk him to where he's got to go. Um, but you and then to, is it on them at that point? Sometimes, um, sometimes it requires more, but usually the goal is to get them free, um, get them to where they can get to an embassy, and uh, whether it's an American or whatever embassy that you know, whatever national, so they can get to the embassy. Go, hey man, this is what happened to me. You know, passports burned. 
lost, whatever, compromise, and can I get a temporary passport to get out, you know, and go home? So a lot of times people, some people are, you know, they understand that. It's like, great, Roger, that you're American. We're going to help you. And actually there's sometimes like, and this happened to one of my clients not too long ago. He's like, Karen, right there everywhere, Karen, like, oh my God, that's illegal what you did. You can't do that. It's like, bitch, I was locked up for five years in the country. I couldn't get out of for doing nothing wrong, but want to see my son, you know? And you're worried about it being illegal. And she's chewing, she's chewing them up and down, you know? And, uh, Jesus Christ, Jiminy, you know? And so I'm the, I'm the opposite of that. I'm like, dude, I'm going to help you get out of there because I'd hate to be in that situation myself too, you know? And uh, Do you talk with a potential client like that on open email? No. I was going to say. No. How are they contacting you? No, you know, we use different, you know, there's all kinds of proton mail and all kinds of But stuff. how do they know where you are? Is it usually someone that's connected to you? They know. People watch me. They, I mean, I've, I've been on so many podcasts and people know who I am, right? And they, they reach out. They find a way to... Yeah, it's easy to find me, right? I don't hide it, you know. In fact, I think you can find my phone number on the internet. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, if you want to find me, I'm easy to find. Mm. Easy peasy. And I usually answer most emails anyways. Um, but like I said, I don't do nothing. Yeah, you could call that illegal. But, you know, there's fine line between, you know, the law and then what's doing doing what's right, you know. And sometimes mm. it's just to me it's a matter of doing what's right. And... uh and I've, uh, there's been a, there's several guys I know that are in this boat in different countries, and uh, it's not right. They haven't seen their family, their children in years, you know, um, not because it was their fault, just because of circumstances, the way it fell out, they, they got caught in it, you know. Remember when uh, in 2010, Dubai, you know, boom, man, everything was going good, and all of a sudden the bottom fell out, you know. There were a lot of guys, a lot of expats that— Wait, what happened in 2010? The economy crashed in Dubai, okay? Mm. Everything went under badly. And a lot of guys went over and invested, started companies, and then, boom, the bottom falls out, and now they're not getting their money, mm-hmm. right? And they owe money. And try try going to that part of the world and get a speeding ticket and don't even know it, and you show up at the airport turn your rental car in, you ain't getting out until you pay that rental car. Right. That's a ticket. And they know. And they pop your visa right there, right? So imagine you owe a bank $500,000, or you owe a hospital a bunch of money for something, and all of a sudden you got no money coming because the economy crashed from under you. And guess what? You're not going nowhere. You're, they pull your visa, your travel, your passport, and you're locked in until you pay. And you can't work either, by the way. Mm. So you'll be walking around aimlessly in a country that's not yours, no way to pay, and no way to make money. And you're like, what do I do? So I kind of have an issue with that because, you know what? Why don't you just lock the guy up? You know, this is kind of stupid, right? It's like it's like having a pet a, a, a pet dog. You go, I don't want to feed him no more. Just turn him loose on the, on the side of the road and fend for yourself. Like, what is he supposed to do? He's not trained to hunt. He's just a dog. He's a domestic dog, right? right? And you do this to a, an expat. And it's not Americans either all, all the time. It's a lot of different nationalities that, that get caught up in these things. And so now you got you to get them out, you know? And uh, there's only limited ways to do it. It's... it's um, it's risky business. I don't do much of it. Um, I'm not, at my age, I'm not prepared to kind of risk that much anymore. I'm more content with just building my business in Indonesia and doing what I do. You know, I do a lot of coaching. You know, I mentioned, I forgot to mention that. The one thing that I really do, do the most, and I like the most, is I do what I call um, mind-body engineering, psychosome engineering. And basically, it's performance coaching 
Um, mm. I really delve into the in the world of um, the subconsciousness, autogenic conditioning, neuro linguistic programming, self meditation, um, self hypnosis, all these things. I go into that, and I teach people how to enhance their personal performance as well as their professional performance and future performance. Um, that's what I really focus on: how to be successful at anything that you do in life. Um, I think I have the resume to support that, you know, the success piece of it. Um, that's really what I enjoy doing. That's actually how I meet a lot of people because they see my posts, my videos, and like, hey, I want to talk to this guy a little bit more about this and that and that. And, wow. And so I've actually got a lot of connections globally, a lot of clients globally, um, a lot of connections in different space. Um, so, I mean, I've got friends everywhere if I need them, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and I've built a lot of business around that as well. I'm into – Trading commodities, stuff like that. I'm getting into oil trading, um, stuff. That's like that. out of left field. Yeah, so I wear Which a lot. It's hard to do. I wear a lot of hats, man. You know, yeah. and uh, you know, I don't just. I'm just not a. To use your word in the beginning, an assassin <laughs> <laughs> or a mercenary. No, um, I'm actually. A, I'm a security consultant advisor, um, but I'm also. That's what they call it these days. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> in, com in combat, I'm an advisor. In the civilian world, I'm a consultant, right? It's kind of weird, but gotcha. yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm a coach, a life coach. That's kind of what I do primarily. I'm an author. I'm an actor. I'm a stuntman. I do a lot of different things. You know, I do trainings. Um, you know, it's uh, – I can wear a lot of different hats. Uh, dog trainer. Um, I had a guy pay me a lot of money just to fly back and forth to Singapore to train his dog. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. It's just, wow. What a nice vacation. We go there for a week, train they the dog. They got a lot of money in Singapore, right? Yeah, they're loaded, man. Yeah, I was going to um, say. It's expensive there too, but. It's one of those. But yeah. Um, Isn't that, wasn't the thing you were talking about before a camera? Wasn't there that one story? Wasn't that client from there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that was, yeah. That story that you're refer referencing. Um, yeah. I got a call from that, that particular client, in fact. Um, Said, hey, you know, my daughter's in Guatemala and she's in trouble. Can you get her out? She's 17 years old. And basically, it was a school trip gone bad. She was going, <laughs> yeah, it was a girls' school trip too. They were boarding school. I think they all graduated. She was 17. And all the girls thought, hey, it's a great idea. Let's go to Guatemala, you know, mm. for graduation. So I don't know who picked the, uh, the hostel that they stayed at, but, uh, um, Man, it was some spooky shit because I went there. I had to go there to get her suitcases after I already recovered her. And so he basically asked me if I knew anybody could get her out of there. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't trust anybody to get her out because as soon as they know who you are and she is, um, she ain't getting out until mm -hmm. you pay a lot of money. You know, I said, so I ended up going and getting her. To make a long story short. Um, went down and picked her up. I went on a Monday morning. And by Thursday morning, I delivered her to Singapore and put her in her in the hands of her her. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, but uh, that was that's actually pretty easy. So I, you know, I, I put that in the in the recovery category. I do recovery, repatriation, and rescue operations as well. Um, this one was a, a recovery. You know, where's the wildest place you ever did one of those? Man, I can't tell you. <laughs> Not that I want to. I can't. I, I see. I have to. That's okay. Me mentioning Guatemala because I didn't do anything over the top, right? I just flew there, picked her up, brought her out. Um, but the other stuff, I got to be careful because gotcha. I may That's need to fine. go back. You know. That's so, fine. Um, well, where minus jobs like that or something to that nature, without detail of that, yeah. Is have you ever been somewhere where you're legit spooked being there? Is there a country that comes to mind with that? 
Um, yeah, Saudi Arabia. Why? Uh, man, it's a very strange culture. Uh, let me tell you how. Let me tell you how this. Again, talk about freedom and things like that. Did if you let's say today we say something negative about Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. right? Oh, that sucks. Whatever. Blah 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 blah. Okay, and you post on social media, and in five years from now you go to Saudi Arabia. Do you know they can arrest you? Oh yeah. For the, for something yeah, you posted this. five years ago, yep, yep. right? Uh, think about that for a minute. Yeah, so, I'm never going to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I you're literally that. walking on eggshells when you go over there, and you know you're being watched. Um, what do you know, mean being watched? Everybody's watching, and they're listening, right? They're intel, everybody. You, you show up as a white guy, you know, an expat, uh, especially an American, you know, you're going to – people are going to pay attention to you. Um, can they get your – can they wi- wire into oh, your iPhone they, when you land? Probably, Yeah. Yeah, they, they got a lot of capabilities. You know why they got them? Because we gave them to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, you're not going to escape all that. So you got to be very careful what you do over there. Anything that could be construed as business, if you're on a tourist passport and you do anything that could be construed as business, um, you could end up in jail right away, you know. And they can detain you as long as they want until they process it and, and pass judgment. Um like literally, you could you could end up being in a detention center for ten years or two years, and nothing's happening. You don't get to talk to anybody, and you're waiting for them to make a decision on did you do something wrong or not. It's very scary place, a very scary place. I do not like being there just because of that. You know, coming out, I remember, um, I was leaving the country, and you know they scanned my my bags as I was leaving the country to go into the terminal, and I had a keychain in my backpack. That had a small, um, in fact, it had a small, if you could see this, this little metal gun here. Right? Oh, yeah, yeah, About that size. It was a key ring. And I had my house keys on it. It was in my backpack, buried. I didn't even know it was still in there, right? And uh, anyways, they found that. They pulled me in a secondary. They laid it out there. And they're like, this is not allowed. This is illegal. What? Yeah, and I'm not shitting, right? And I'm almost got in a pissing contest with the guy. I was like, are you a freaking, are you an idiot? You know, because who am I going to kill with that thing, you know? And it was illegal. Wow. It was illegal. And he was really starting to, you know, starting to dress me down on this one. And and I'm like trying to have a conversation. I said, no, this is my keychain for my house key. You cannot have this. This is, I'm, I'm getting on air. I'm leaving your country. You cannot have this. And it started getting a little, you know, a little heated, you know? And I remember reminding myself, Comstock, you, you're not going to win, not in their country. Yeah. You know, shut up or you end up in that detention center, you know, <laughs> you know, for, for, for carrying a firearm through an airport. That's how they're going to, yeah, even yeah. though it's this freaking big, right? So I said, can I at least have my key off the damn thing? And he kind of almost was hesitant to give me my key. I was like, I finally got my key, you know, and I gave him the stupid thing, you know, and like, oh, God dang, man. I had, a, I had another thing. It was a little, a little tiny uh, screwdriver set. And the screwdrivers were like maybe an inch long. Oh, try and take it on the plane? Yeah, in my backpack. It's a little, it's not, it's not a weapon. You can't do anything with it, you know, unless they thought I was going to take it. I think the, a guy like you could do something with that. Oh, my God. Dude, I could do more of this, the, the soup bone than I can anything else, <laughs> man, you know? <laughs> the screwdriver, they are, you know, let me put this thing together and do something, drill some guy's wet head, um, drill the doors, the knobs off the, uh, the, the cockpit door. Well, we know we can't do that. That, that we learned, Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, it's just, yeah, a lot of lunacy out there, man. And uh, you just got to shut your mouth, respect the rules, 
and move out, you know. And uh, sometimes that can be a little tough, you know. And some people can really grate your nerves with some of the crap, you know. Um, that was one of the places I was a little uncomfortable with. Um, no, nah, I'd say a lot uncomfortable with you. Know, I always just felt like I'm always being watched, you know. And I just, there's other places I've been to where I know I was being watched. I know they had cameras in the rooms. Every time I show up in country, I stay in a hotel, they put me in the same room. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I already know that, you know, so. You waving to all of them? Yeah. All right. Undressing. You're doing, giving me a little show, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, there's, yeah. A friend of mine has been going back and forth to Saudi Arabia a little bit. And, you know, he talks about some of some of the slight outward shifts in culture there you know some women can drive now like yeah. they're making some basic steps i right. guess but he talks about also how you know it is so a, a lot of it is so beautiful and clean and the price to that is that the level of strictness and what they do to people just taking them off the streets is the smallest thing wrong yeah yeah it's scary i mean you you jaywalk yeah you i wouldn't call it clean either honestly um, <laughs> well, the places he's been, I, I'm, I'll forget the cities he's been in, but the places he's been are like some of the more, yeah, up, you know, upscale type yeah. destination places they're trying to show to people. Yeah, yeah, they're actually inviting a lot of tourists in, right? Because yeah. I think what's happening, they're going to oh, the oil thing is starting to dry up, and they're trying. What to do you attract, mean? Well, I, I think what's happening is maybe they see the threat in the future of the electric cars, um, but there's a for whatever reason they're trying to attract more tourism. And uh, I got to be honest with you, we went there as tourists and we went to all the tourist sites and it was nothing there. I'm like, what? I thought there was something cool here to see, but there's actually nothing. See, I went to one castle. It was like, it looked like a sand castle on the beach that a kid built. I was like, that's it? That's the castle? It's like, did they just kind of build this thing up real quick, you know? <laughs> it's not even a good one, you know? It's just, yeah. Um, I, Yeah, I don't know what there is to see there. I didn't see anything worth... Uh, Wasting my time is what I did, but uh, who knows? You know, maybe I didn't uh, look look hard enough. But I've been to a lot of bad places. I've been to a lot of shitty countries. I've been to some countries that are actually very surprising, like uh, Vietnam, for example. Um, it's a communist country, but I was actually surprised, man, how well organized it was, and people were thriving, and you know, people were some people were driving really nice cars, and you know, people could do what they kind of want. You know, had a lot of freedom. Wow. I was like. Okay, it's not what I imagined, you know. Um, not at all. You know, I remember one time I was riding a motorcycle and pouring rain, and I had to go a long way. I, did, I rode this bike for like 16 hours, man, and it was pouring rain. I didn't have a poncho. I pull over to this little, whatever, little shop on the outside, little cafe thingy, and I walk in, and it's pouring rain. I ask the lady, I say, hey, you guys sell any ponchos? And she goes, no. I go, ah, it's raining, you know, and and she didn't have ah, Okay. She goes, wait, wait, wait. She runs in the back room and she brings out her own personal poncho, you know, and uh, she gives it to me. She goes, here, here, here. I said, oh, that, how much? How much? She goes, no, no, no. You don't have to pay. I said, no, no, really. No, she said, no, no, no. I said, okay. I said, uh, I'll, buy all, I'll buy all that stuff. I want to buy all that right there, you know, and I, I bought some stuff and I gave her a whole bunch of money, you know, on top of that, you know, but I was actually surprised how nice she was to me. Like, wow. She, you know, but then there were other places I went to, like, especially the men. I go get gas. I'm like, hey, uh, I need gas, you know. <laughs> 
I'm like, no, I just want gas. You know, it's mm-hmm. like they had an attitude. I'm like, whoa, just you know, gas. You know, fill it up. <laughs> Here's my money. And I get Sounds out. Sounds like the gas station around here. Yeah, it's probably no, <laughs> probably no different. Maybe it was something personal. I don't know. But yeah, overall, you pull up. I'm like, can I get some gas? It's like they're fucking. They're pissed. You pulled up. I'm yeah. like, I'm not paying you. Gas for what? Well, for what? What do you get? You know? Fuck out of here. <laughs> no, actually, uh, I was actually surprised. That was one of the places that really surprised me. Um, my wife wants to go there, and I said, yeah, we'll I'll probably take her back over there one of these days, but. Um, the, I was mentioned in the car, Hong Kong was one of my favorite cities mm. um, until the Chinese took it over. That was kind of a shit show. I was there in 2015 when the British handed Hong Kong back to uh, China. And uh, when I lived there, man, it was so cool, man. And, you know, everybody spoke English, you know. Of course, they spoke Chinese, you know. just seemed like a really cool place to live. Very well organized, good in, uh, infrastructure, transportation system. You know, the Brits had it, you know, so it's pretty squared away. And then, when and I was there when they were protesting, right? The, the yeah, protest yeah. started. 2019. And, oh, my God, man. There were thousands and thousands Whoa. and thousands of people on the streets waving American flags, American flags, right? Were you doing a job there at the time? Uh, I was protecting a billionaire, Rush, uh, bodyguard. I was running security deal for a multi-billionaire investment banker. So I lived there downtown. And uh, and I watched these parades, all the, you know, whatever, just demonstrations. And, you know, it was amazing. They were literally, you know, um, you know, flying the don't trade on me flags, you know, the yellow um, 2A, you know, American flags, you know. And I'm like, wow. And they're they're asking, they wish they had, you know, the Second Amendment because they're disarmed and they're going to get taken over or whatever. Chinese government's going to take over. And they knew they're going to be doomed, man. I felt really bad for them um, because they're actually really cool people and good people. And then... Once all that happened, the transition happened, I, I went back a few times, and it was so different. They took English out of the schools. Um, a lot of the rural people now came to the city, you know, and they're selling their, their, their wares and stuff, and they can't speak English. They don't want to speak English. Um, it just seemed like, yeah, it just didn't seem a very, like, a welcoming place anymore, you know? Well, what do you think of, of China and all that? And the reason I ask that is because I, I kind of go... All right, guys, that is the end of part one of two of my sit down with Dale Comstock. In this next episode, we're going to pick up right where we left off, talking all about China. And Dale was entertaining as hell for the rest of it as well, going into a whole bunch of new topics. So please hit that subscribe button, hit that like button on the video as well, and also hit that notifications bell so you get notified when the new episode comes out. If you're not following me over on Instagram, you can check out the podcast at Julian Dory Podcast and also on my personal page at Julian D. Dory. Also, don't forget to check out the playlist down in the description below. It'll take you to episodes that covered similar topics to this one that you also might enjoy. See you guys for the next one with Dale.